With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. special 100th episode of the Rock Chalk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Mitz. Tonight, we have a very full uh, slate for you tonight. We've got a tons of different guests talking about basically everything that you can think of when it comes to Kansas athletics. Uh, we have, we're have we going to start first with, with Jill Dorsey Hall. Uh, she's going to be talking with us about volleyball and, and women's basketball. Just a couple quick notes about this interview before we get there, though. Uh, she she had to do this interview without having the actual schedule in front of her for both of these sports. So there are a couple times where she she messes up the schedule just a little bit. Um, but you know that we all know in, in the world of podcasting that happens unfortunately when you don't have everything sitting there right in front of you. So um, specifically, she had mentioned a women's basketball game against Arizona State, which actually isn't on the schedule. Um, but we we took care of that right actually there in the interview. Um, but also, she had mixed up in terms of the games that the volleyball team has left. They've already played at Baylor and lost that game. They were, instead are going um, to TCU uh, in, in, instead of what she had originally thought. So, no big deal there, but we'll go ahead and get you guys right on over to that interview to start us off. And I'm joined now, once again, by Jill Dorsey-Hall. Jill, how, how are you doing tonight? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So, we're sitting here trying to think of how we can talk about pretty much everything that's going on with Kansas athletics. And, you know, I, I had talked to you earlier to, to preview the volleyball team. Uh, it made perfect sense to bring you back on. We're going to go ahead and preview women's basketball, and then we're going to kind of get an update on, on the volleyball team as well. So I love it. Two of my favorites. Yeah, exactly. So so let's go ahead and start with the women's basketball team. Um, you know, obviously, they had kind of a rough year last year. Um, you know, Coach, Coach Schneider was still trying to implement his system. Uh, it seems like things might have turned around a little bit for them. Maybe, maybe they're actually getting some some good uh, publicity and, and optimism going into yeah. this season. 
Yeah, it, it, they're receiving votes in the coaches' poll, and that means there's eyes on the program year four now of Coach Schneider and his um, under the helm of Coach Schneider. And first year that they have had more recruits that they've recruited than not in his fourth year at Kansas. And they have totally coined tough and together as their hashtag, and it is something that they preach, they practice. I was actually at practice last week and prior to taking on in their second exhibition game, Washburn, and they – they're tough. I mean, they somebody steps in and takes a charge, and they're, everybody's running to the, the, their teammate to pick them up. I mean, everybody. And so they're setting the standard on a lot of things that don't go in the stat sheet that have carried over, and it's a mindset. And he it is a tough team. A lot of players back from a year ago, they were hindered a little bit from injuries, and they had three overtime games that you think if that turns the other way, if they come out victorious of those, they could have possibly made it to the WNIT, I think, um, just missing postseason play last year. I know that sounds maybe crazy, but I do. I thought that they had potential to make a run in that tournament. This year, I think they have a, a chance to make a run at getting back into the NCAA tournament. They have enough depth. They have enough talent. They'll get Jessica Washington back. They She got a medical waiver. She, two seasons ago, led their team in scoring. And they have some junior college players now in their senior year. Austin Richardson is really that player that makes them go. She's a senior that came from Johnson County Community College and just is a worker. She averages a double-double. And she's just a fierce player that is in the best shape of her life. She's a most improved player. And that's what you love to see. And she's just taking the opportunity to play basketball at the University of Kansas by the horns. And you can tell she loves being a Jayhawk. And those are players, local players, that you love to root for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, I mean, yeah, it's 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 good to hear that they actually are bringing a lot back. I know that last year it seemed like they started out pretty well, um, you know, especially compared to the seasons before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kind of faded, especially when they got into Big 12 play. Um, one, is that a fair assessment of how the season went last year? Fair last assessment, okay. but yeah, the Big 12 is the monster when you talk oh, about women's basketball. I mean, you got especially Baylor. Baylor. Always... <laughs> Baylor and then Oklahoma is one of the young, I think, bright teams in the conference. They're going to be spectacular this year. And then they have just a lot of, you know, the Big 12 is one of the best conferences in women's basketball in the country. And so it is, it is difficult, um, you know, night in and night out. And so if you finish in the middle in the big 12, you're going to be in postseason. So that's the good thing about, you know, the big 12 conference. And then they do have a, lot of a heavy senior class, uh, two more junior college transfers coming into the program, both actually hail from Brazil and they're very, very talented. One, the number was six, junior college transfer, number one in her position. She provides a lot of uh, length. Um, and then they have a lot of more depth in the point guard position, too. Fantastic freshmen, actually, uh, in Brooklyn Mitchell and Anaya Thomas that I think are going to have a really, really bright career at Kansas. So keep an eye on them. And then I know we're focused on this season, but talk about the recruits he has coming in next year. I just think that this program is on the uptick. He has a brand-new assistant coach. That was the head coach, Dory Collins, from Emporia State on his staff. And he's got a great staff already um, around him. And I just think that things are looking really good in year four for Coach Snyder and his crew because they're they're tough, and uh, I think they're exciting to watch. Sounds great. Yeah, I mean, I, I know it's been, you know, it's it's been a while since uh, I think we've had a, a consistent program, and it sounds like they're starting to build towards that again. 
um, I mean, how, how tough has it been for the, the Kansas women? Um, you know, I mean, they, the last time I remember, I'm trying to remember the year that it was when they, when they went on the run to the uh, sweet 16. Um, but since then, I mean, it seems like they've just had setback after setback and it, they might yeah, finally be getting year, some it, good footing. Last year was injury plague, really. I mean, you lose Jessica Washington like that. You had some depth. and I mean, give credit to Kylie Kopatich. I mean, she's now a senior, and she's been through quite a bit in her, her career at, at the University of Kansas, and she's just been a steady player. And so when you have her, you have Austin Richardson. I think you have seniors there that, man, this is their year to shine. And I think also, too, when you have a big senior class like they do, they know it's their last chance. So I think they're going to give a really good run at it. But it has been difficult. It's been a combination of things. You know, year one, you're just trying to, you know, pick up the pieces. They've had a pretty small team, but now they have more depth. And depth in every position as well, which is great to see because they'll run an upstyle tempo of play. They will get the ball in transition and, and look to score. And they have some they have some down the hill. I mean, working, you know, to the basket and some finishers. They have more playmakers this year and depth of the guard that I've seen in the in, in his tenure there at Kansas. And a lot of it is because he's getting more of his players in and in the system, um, working on being very disciplined in the sets that he runs. Sounds great. So, so what are some of the big matchups that we should really be paying attention to in the next few weeks here? Yeah, you know, they go on the road. I know they have an SEC matchup. Um, I'm focused primarily on the ones that they have at, you know, at home coming up. And so I think those are always just good non-con. I know they play Arizona State, and they're ranked in the top 25. So that will be a marquee matchup to just kind of see where they're at against the top 25 opponent before they right. go into conference, which is loaded with, you know, Big 12, top 25 type of caliber teams. But um I think anytime you can go on the road, I believe they play LSU on the road. I think that's a big one. And then Arizona State. And so, and Nebraska, they have to go to Nebraska this year. They had Nebraska at home last year, but having to go on the road to see if they can pick up a marquee win there before they go and go into conference. They have a few, I think, opponents coming up here that they should, you know, be able to work on their lineup and trying to, because they do have so much depth, work on some combinations still that they should be favored in winning. Um, but all in all, you'd like to rack up some of those wins because right now, receiving votes in the top 25, you have eyes on your program and you want to notch some wins and keep those eyes on your program going into conference play. Yeah, definitely. So when is that game against Arizona State? You know, I've got to look at that because that's on the road. I don't have that one on my docket of what I'm you know, I, I, doing research on. So I I'm just going to say, I'm sitting here trying to look through the schedule it. and I'm not seeing it. Maybe it's just... Maybe, maybe, that, maybe I'm wrong on that. That I knew they played them last year, but I could be mistaken on that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing, and, and again, I, I, I this is honestly my my first time really diving in. I've got uh, they play Washington State at home on the 19th of December. Okay. Um, they do they are on the road back to back November 29th and then December 5th at, at LSU and then at Nebraska. Okay, um, I knew I had those two right down because I knew they played them. Um, they have that SEC Big 12 challenge, I believe, and yeah. then. But it, it, it actually looks like that's their first road game is their game at LSU. So, um, and then back to back in Nebraska. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. So, so that'll be a tough stretch. Um, hopefully, we get an opportunity to actually see some of those on 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 television. I know that most of the games are on ESPN Plus. Um, at least the home games are. So, hopefully, we'll get a chance to see some really good games from from the women's team. I think you know, actually, some of my favorite March memories actually were that year that they went to the Sweet 16 because it was just so unexpected. 
and it was a great, you know, kind of nice uh, break from what we usually see in March. Right. Um, and when they beat, was that when they beat Tennessee in that year? That year? Is that I what believe you're talking so, about? yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that was a great run. Yeah, yep, it definitely was. All right, well, we're we're, we're definitely going to look forward. Now, are you involved with the broadcast there still, or I am? Yeah, I have a few. I have the match coming up on uh, this coming Sunday and the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So I think the 18th and the 21st, you can catch those two on ESPN Plus. I'll be with Josh Klingler on those two. Oh, awesome! Yeah, we actually uh, we we talked with Josh earlier talking about the women's soccer team, and I saw he was on some of the other games I was looking at too. So, um, yeah, it'd be great to. To, to hear from both of you guys, I actually follow Josh from his, uh, you know, from a, a lot of stuff that he does on the, on the radio when I was living in the Kansas City area. So it, it's great to hear his voice on the broadcast. And it's obviously it's, it's great to hear you and then also uh, Leaf as well. So, uh, OK, let's let's go ahead and jump over now to the women's volleyball team. Uh, they, they started out really, really hot at the beginning of conference play. Um, they were undefeated when they took on Texas the first time and actually won that match. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, things haven't gone quite so well. If you can, yeah. I mean, what's, what's really happened to the defense <laughs> then? Well, they had an injury, and unfortunately, uh, to their to their starting setter, they've went through many different combinations of lineups this season. They've settled on a kind of an interesting system with Gabby Simpson and also Cameron Ennis. So Cameron Ennis injured her ankle, actually, in one of those matches. She went down in, in the first set, and since after that, they went on a bit of a skid. They lost three in a row, and I think it was because then what happened? Their lineup they they got they settled on. Then she goes out, and then you have to move some other pieces around. Uh, Machi Woki comes in as a middle. She's a very talented middle, but just having to move your lineup around a little bit, and then that moves Zoe Hill, who's fantastic in the middle, over to the right side. So it's not just one player that impacts, but multiple players because of that. And so when that happens, I think they just had to figure that out a little bit more. Gabby Simpson then was running a 5-1, so the only setter on the floor. They picked, they got back on track at West Virginia on a huge road victory that they needed to get back on track. Um, But that was, I think, the reason why you saw those three losses in a row. And I do think when you look at their schedule from – a holistic perspective. I do think the first half of conference lend itself a bit um, kind, a bit more kind to them from where they, who they were playing home and away, right? They had, they had Texas at home. Um, although they did get to pick up a good road victory against OU, who's proving to be right on their heels in the big 12 standings. But I think the big piece was that injury to, to Cameron Ennis. Cause she was doing a lot. She was filling up the stat sheet from them from a perspective of, providing offense when they needed it as a attacking setter and then also blocking and, and, and digging her defense on the back row as a setter is very, very strong. Yeah. I, I figured it was some sort of injury thing. Unfortunately, I don't get as many opportunities to watch them out here where mm-hmm. I'm at. Um, but you know, they looked so good in that match against Texas or the first one. Um, yeah. It was hard to imagine that they were, you know, going to lose and then seeing that they had lost three in a row. Like, Obviously, I didn't expect them to go undefeated in the in the conference, but I, I was expecting, um, you know, that they weren't going to have any like big stretches of, of back to back games. But injuries would definitely make sense, especially given, you know, they they are, are trying to get a good rhythm with a lot of new players this year. Like we talked mm-hmm. about in our in our preseason preview, you know, they're having to replace a lot of talent. Um, and when they finally got their footing underneath them. 
to have someone get injured really, really will mess with all that chemistry and all of that. So totally. And you know, the thing is you talk, you go back, let's rewind to when we talked before, again, you know, going kind of a non-con preview, you went four and four right out of the gates. And you thought, okay, well, it is what it is. They lost three All-Americans. They have two of their assistant coaches went to different programs and two new assistant coaches, right? I mean, they had a lot of newness. When you think you take a step back from and look at it, you're, you're thinking a rebuilding year. Got it. You know, a lot of young players, New players playing in different roles, um, and but now you're, you you jump out to such a great like Big Twelve conference play, and you're like, whoa, no, let's win, let's go win the Big Twelve title, right? Right. But I think if you were to ask Coach Richard and say, going into this season, all the adversity that you've had to go through, you're losing your number one outside hitter, Patricia Montero, to a third knee injury that she's had to endure which is heartbreaking for her as a player she's fantastic and and you lose her she's a six rotation player then you lost your the starting setter that started the year for you Anonica Carlson due to an injury she's still not back in the lineup or even available you know you lose her and then you start to figure out this lineup he told me there's matches this year there's a match and I can't remember which one it was he said we've never done that in practice ever never had that lineup and and that's not a discount to him as a coach that's just because you truly didn't think of that, that lineup of sort what was going to happen, you know? Right. So I think when you say, hey, we have an opportunity to make um, our seventh consecutive NCAA tournament appearance, we have a, a chance to finish, I think right now, realistically, second or third in the Big 12. That's still very, very good. Um, and they just don't have a lot of depth. I mean, contrastingly from the women's basketball team, they don't have a lot of depth. I mean, look at their sideline and – there's not a lot of players that he has to put in there. And so he is truly give their coaching staff, Billy Ebel and, and Maggie Anderson, the two new assistants alongside with coach Richard, who's been so good for so long and an outstanding job. When you know everything that's kind of went on from it, it's, it's easy to go back, step back and look at the record and say, Oh, they're having an okay year. But when you look at all the pieces that they've had to deal with and all the adversity, I, I think it's tremendous. I actually think it's one of his better coaching jobs he's, he's had. Yeah. I mean, this was, Already, like everybody knew going into this year that this was going to be a quote unquote rebuilding year. Um, you know, just losing, like you said, three All Americans. I mean, just everything that they lost last year. And so mm-hmm. the fact that they started out so hot immediately was just like, wow, you know, this, we don't usually see this except for when it comes, you know, to, to, to KU men's basketball for whatever right. reason. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was reminiscent of, of that kind of, of that kind of run there where sure it took a little bit of time in the non-conference, but once you hit conference play, it seemed like they were back to the old, you know, the old ways that we got used to with, with all mm-hmm. these, these great Kansas teams. So, um, you know, I mean, they, they are still third in the standings, just half a game behind Baylor. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, you know, they, they definitely have a good opportunity. What are the going to be some of the key matches coming up for the rest of the season that will determine whether they're yeah. you know, finishing anywhere from probably like second to fourth in the conference? Yeah, well, they have a chance to get some revenge against Iowa State. They have to go to Ames still, and uh, that'll be a tough one. And then they have – don't look past Kansas State. I mean, they went on the road, and that was one of those first losses that they had to endure was in Manhattan, Kansas. And that was on, a you know, the national stage. They played on ESPNU that night. They have them this Wednesday. So I think that is a huge one. You know, you keep looking – you look forward just to the next match. But they have that. They have <clears> – <throat> OU still left um, on their docket, and they're playing very, very well under new head coach. That's going to be senior night, and so they've got to win that. Last year, uncharacteristically lost on their senior night of such a 
such a lustrous like senior senior group that they had and everybody was shocked to that about that loss they lost to west virginia and five on senior night so i know that one will be really really important for them to win going into what would be selection sunday because i think texas is going to win the conference so because they don't have a conference tournament texas will get that out that bid from the big 12 and so then you're fighting for an at-large bid to get into the ncaa tournament um so I think that that will be pivotal. I I think that the Big 12, just because of how good it is, I think we'll get three, four teams in. There's been years where they've had as much as six teams in. But right. I think if they could somehow knock off, you know, Baylor at Baylor, that would be a big-time victory. Either Baylor or Iowa State I think is much needed. And then if they can get another marquee road victory under their belt, especially against a good RPI, Baylor's higher than them. They're 15th in the RPI. Um, Iowa State's below them in RPI, but it's always tough to win in Ames, Iowa. So I think those two are pivotal. And then you just got to win out at home. Um, I know that that sounds like, you know, the obvious, but you just can't drop another match at home because you you already beat Texas at home. So you, you can beat everybody else, I think, in conference at home. Right. Yeah, so they have four matches left in the season, um, you know, and, and just looking at the rest of the records from the conference, Kansas is probably, uh, well, let, 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 let's see, Texas is 17-4, and four, Baylor 17-7, Kansas is 15-8. and eight. Other than that, everyone has double-digit losses. So, yeah, it's hard to see anyone else in the conference that's kind of a shoe-in for the, for, for the NCAA tournament. Um you know, obviously, if if Oklahoma or Iowa State kind of go on a run here and win quite a few, or or Texas Tech even, if they, you mm-hmm. know, they're they're at sixteen and ten, um, it's hard to see though if Kansas doesn't win at least I think three of those last four, um, it's hard to see how they have a clear cut case to be a at large team in the in the tournament. Uh, I'm really hoping that they do get back into the tournament this year, so we can hopefully see a couple upsets en route to a a big tournament for them, but. Uh, yeah, um, I think honestly, I think I think tournament volleyball is some of my favorite volleyball to watch, and there's been some really good volleyball matches to watch outside of that. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, so you said the selection Sunday is is when exactly? Selection Sunday. I've got a. It is coming like, up really soon. I think it looks it's like the twenty fifth. It looks like of November, probably. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm going to actually be. I'm going to um, be in Omaha to cover the Big East Championships. They've hired me out to do that in Omaha, but, uh, for Fox sports, uh, that weekend, but I will be heading back to Kansas city to watch selection Sunday. It's one of my favorite times. Yeah, definitely. So, all right. Well, um, was there anything else from either of these two teams you want to share with us tonight? I think just go out, go on support of the teams, you know, I think I'm a huge sort of supporter of all the sports, but also tennis. I don't know if you talk about them ever, but man, they're making some headway uh, on campus and, and getting a lot of wins under their belt too. But as for women's volleyball, it's a big, big time right now. We used to call it November and this is the time where you move, you know, uh, move in the standings and make your move at the end of the comp, you know, end the season at a conference to go into tournament time and women's basketball is just starting. So come out and support have big big hopes in front of them and I do think that this is a, a a major season under the belt of coach Snyder in his fourth year and I think big t- big things to come for his program 
Sounds good. Yeah, we we do try to at least give updates on on the tennis matchup yeah. and all of that stuff. But I haven't found yet anyone that can that can come on and give us more insight than than uh, we typically would get. Just looking. I'll at try stuff. to find some because they are truly they're making headways on the on the national scale. I mean, I I follow them on Twitter and I know there's some quite some buzz about them when you you go on campus and you hear people talking, which is great. You know, I think every sport deserves you know the the coverage and the you especially oh, yeah. when we're making a you know the Jayhawks are making a name for themselves on the national stage that's awesome yeah well you know and and that's actually something that we pride ourselves on here over here at this podcast because you know we've we we had an entire uh episode dedicated to the Jayhawk hockey team um so I mean we we, we like to try <laughs> to get as many of the sports highlighted as we possibly can so I'll well, have to thank Thank you for that. And happy podcast birthday to you as well. Thanks. (laughs) All right. Well, Jill, thanks again for joining us. Uh, If you can let the people know how they can find you on on Twitter or anywhere else online. Jill Jill Dorsey Hall is my handle. I think both on Instagram. I mostly post silly pictures of Leaf and I. um, (laughs) I haven't done it to Josh yet on days of broadcast, but we have a, a silly thing of of matching when we do broadcast. I don't know if anybody's picked up on that yet. And then also um, on Twitter, it's an inside joke. I don't know if anybody's ever caught on to that, but um, I typically pick a color out of the crown box and give him and to, he just has to try to match me. And he's done an amazing job of doing that over the last six years. That's awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. You too. And that'll do it for our interview with Jill Dorsey Hall. Up next... We are going to go to the interview I had with Scott Chase, and he he joined us a little bit to talk about the football coaching search, uh, also about just the football team in general. So did a little bit of recap of the, of the Kansas State game, looking ahead to the Oklahoma game and what we can expect to see there. Um, it was actually really great to have him back on the podcast again, but I, I will get you right out to that interview. And I'm joined now once again by Scott Chasen uh, from Fog.net, the 24-7 sports uh, site that talks about the Kansas Jayhawks. Scott, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm doing a lot better. You know, you mentioned right before we hopped on, I'm not at an airport tonight, so it's nice to get a little bit of a night off and, uh, and not have to stalk <laughs> KU's athletic director flying on private airplanes. Yeah, you know, I always thought, I mean, is that really as boring as it sounds like it would be just sitting there waiting for a plane to come in? Uh, do you at least have good company there to talk to and, and try to keep things interesting? Uh, you know, sometimes some fans actually showed up uh, one of the times expecting to see uh, Les Miles. And, you know, obviously a, a good group of reporters strolling in and out. Obviously it hasn't just been me. You know, Matt Galloway, the Capitol Journal, uh, Jeffy Gould, against the Star Day of the Door, the Kings City Star, Benton Smith, Lawrence Journal World. Uh, we've all kind of been in at each of these opportunities to, to watch the guys come in. Yeah, it gets very boring. And then other times it gets kind of crazy when – you know, KU has a has a hangar that's a little bit away from the main airport. So, you know, you ask the question of where should you go? You know, which plane's coming in? Are the planes being rerouted? Is there made-up itinerary for Baton Rouge, even though there's no intention of going to Baton Rouge at any point whatsoever? Um, there's a lot of that. My favorite part, though, is when, like, I'll tweet, like, Jeff Long just came in from Dallas, and then, like, three people will tweet back at me, no, he didn't, he came in from Baton Rouge, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, he, he didn't, he, he didn't go to Baton Rouge, but, uh, no, it's, it's been a, it, it's been an absolute blast, and I've learned way more about aviation than I ever thought I would. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, while this seems to be a fun and exciting time, like, I don't ever want to be in continual coaching searches, but it's, 
it's it's always so weird and oddly satisfying to jump onto a flight tracker page and see you know what's coming in and then and then speculate and see other people agree <laughs> with your speculations about what that actually means. Um, yeah, I, I'll be honest, man. This, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. Like just in general, like airplane tracking, it, it feels like so silly sometimes that you know we're like we're literally going to the Lawrence Municipal Airport. And just like watching and observing and taking pictures, and like I, th- I thought this was a perfect example. You know, there is a a pick or a, you know, Jeff Long gets off the plane with an unidentified individual, and we don't know who that is because obviously no one knows what all the pilots look like and everything like that. So then there becomes this whole like search for who is this man and and whatnot. And and the source told me, uh, I mean, it was pretty quick that that it wasn't a pilot. So fortunately, the Speculation wasn't out there for a guy that looks like Jim Harbaugh's father, right? You know, football's next head coach. But no, it's it's it is appropriately silly, appropriately ridiculous, and I would also call it like I said, the stupidest thing I've ever done. Yeah, I mean, I just I I thought it was hilarious. I, I remember back when we were doing the the last coaching search, and one of the biggest articles that we had over on Rock Talk Talk was the article that showed David Beatty getting off of the plane when he was, you know, and and everyone was like, well, wait, who is this guy? Because like nobody recognized him at first. And it took a little while for us to figure out who it was and all the speculation that was going on there. It's absolutely, like you said, the most ridiculous thing ever, and yet somehow the most fun thing when it comes to college football. So, all right. So I I guess that leads us into, let's go ahead and talk first about the coaching search. Obviously, you know, it's been going on for a little while now. The the heavy favorite in a lot of people's eyes is Les Miles. Um, There's been a lot of other names thrown out there and either immediately squashed by you know, someone from, from KU leadership or, um, you know, you've got a lot of reports of, well, Kansas has met with this person and nobody says anything. Is there anybody other than Les Miles that you think is a very strong candidate at this point to get consideration? You know, I, I think there are a few. I actually wanted to start with this, with just with regard to the number of times Les Miles' name has been thrown out there, you know, and, and the Baton Rouge thing. Because the fact of the matter is, like, we don't know – you know, 100% that every time a flight goes up listed for Baton Rouge, that it's some kind of a smokescreen by KU. But what we do know is that there have been three flights listed to go to Baton Rouge that were, you know, involving KU's athletic director, and none of them went. So, you know, right. if if Jeff Long were using Les Miles as a smokescreen, you know, he, he better hope he has a, a pretty great candidate because otherwise the fan base is going to be pretty riled up and, and – I mean, probably furious if he went in and got a coach that was not established at all. I mean, Les Miles literally won a national championship and reached another. If you dangle that in front of your fan base, they're going to be expecting a good, you know, name. Now, as for some other candidates, Todd Graham is one that, that I personally think, Dennis Dodd has reported that there's a mutual interest between he and KU. Uh, I think personally, if I were picking candidates, based off what I know of him and talking to people who have covered him, uh, I think he would be a fantastic fit at Kansas. I think the way he gets the most out of his talent, how he's not overly relied on Juco, uh, Juco players, but used them to rebuild, get short-term results, but with the goal of building a culture uh, and then kind of phasing them out and, and what he's done with his defenses. I think as a coordinator or a coach, he'd be fantastic, but you'd have to worry, you know, is he going to stick around? Is he a long-term guy, uh, especially given his track record at some places? You'd probably have to have a crazy buyout in there. Uh, Seth Luttrell is another one I think would be a slam dunk. I'm not sure he'd be interested. I don't know if he would be interested. Um, and, and I think some of the names are interesting. Like, I mean, you see the name that uh, I think may, maybe fans, I, I, I mean, you would have to help me out a little bit with this one if you think that fans like Jed Fish 
would be like fans would be mad about that because I know he's not the flashiest name, but I, I think it could work. You know, feasibly, he's been tied by a couple reports to have at least met with Jeff Long. Jeff Long was in Colorado Springs to uh, a source told us to you know work on that coaching search. So you know maybe he's a guy too that gets some consideration, but but I think he in particular. Uh, would go against some of the things that Jeff Long previously said he'd be looking for in a head coach, specifically right. head coaching experience and not being an NFL coach. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not 100 percent sure. How yeah, I mean, on, on, honestly, I could see him potentially being talked to at least to kind of cover all bases. I could also see him potentially being talked to as maybe like an offensive coordinator coming in. Um, I don't think if, if he's the guy that ends up getting hired as the head coach. It's, I do think a lot of people will be upset. One, because you're right, he doesn't meet all the qualifications that Jeff Long said that had to have in order to get the job. Um, and two, I mean, you know, he's he's an offensive specialist for the Rams. It's not like he's the offensive coordinator on the Rams. Like he's he's involved in one of the best offenses in the NFL right now, but he is not the guy running it, you know, and he's mm-hmm. not the guy responsible for it. So there's no guarantee that he's actually going to be able to bring that style of play and bring that kind of success to Kansas. Um, and then yeah. not having any head coaching experience. I mean, essentially, you know, he, 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 he's at least been an offensive coordinator, um, but we're kind of back in the same boat. He's not a recent offensive coordinator. It's not like he's been running a program recently. Um, you know, we, we've seen that with other guys, you know, David Beatty coming in, oh, the highest he had gotten to was a position coach. And obviously um, Fish has been a little higher than that, um, being an offensive coordinator over at UCLA. But, um, you know, it's still kind of the you're bringing a guy who's unproven, and is kind of untested and has not been in that high pressure situation recently and trying to get him to go ahead and run probably one of the biggest rebuilding program or rebuilding projects you're going to have in a power five conference in a very long time. Um, yeah. And, and if you bring him in too, I mean, like, like I said about the Les miles thing again, once, once Les miles is in everyone's mind, I mean, someone compared it to on Twitter. I saw like if everyone's talking about Jim Harbaugh and then, you know, you go out and you bring in like an unknown assistant and, you know, just to give an example, not, you know, not saying any, not trying to disparage anyone, but, but when you dangle like a, a, a really good elite promising whatever coach, I, I mean, Les Miles, who is, you know, friends with, obviously has a relationship with Jeff Long, like Les Miles won a national championship. So like if KU fans think, as I believe they probably do, that there is a better than 50% chance they're getting Les Miles, you have to come with a really good coach or you are going to lose a lot of the fan base or a lot of the attention that you would otherwise get. I also think KU should absolutely try to hire its coach before this Saturday. Uh, you know, you've got a nationally televised game coming up. Uh, you would want them spending a lot of time on that broadcast talking about your new coach and maybe not about the product on the field. Yeah, the only issue with that comes if, you know, if it is someone who currently has a job that you want to get, like a Seth Luttrell coming up. Um, you know, those guys that are currently running programs, you obviously can't announce that before the sure. end of the season. So yeah. uh, I think I think the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that they're actually targeting somebody who is already currently in a head coaching position or currently yeah. on a staff in like an offensive coordinator role or something like that. Um, yeah, the, the only thing that changes there, and I agree with you for the record, because I think some of the best candidates are people who, who currently are employed, is that right. Jeff Long has made it very clear that he wants to get someone in there recruiting right now, specifically because of, you know, how soon signing day comes up. KU obviously only has one commit in the upcoming class. So I would agree with you. I I think, you know, Seth Luttrell, like I mentioned, like you just said, and I mean, I think he would be, if you could sway him, I I think he'd be a great candidate. Dave Dorn, another one who I think 
you right. know, maybe maybe some fans don't love as much another good candidate, but uh, I'm not sure Jeff Long wants to wait for that. Is the only thing. Yeah, and even another one who you know, if 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 you can't get some of those top guys, a guy like a uh, Matt Canada, who's the interim coach over at Maryland, I think I've talked about this on a couple of other podcasts before. Um, but you know, I think he's removed enough from the scandal over there at Maryland that he could be a legitimate option. Um, and I think he's shown enough with running the Maryland team this year after all the adversity that's been there to show that maybe he has what it would take. But again, you know, he's mm-hmm. cur- he currently has a job. You'd have to wait till the end of the, the season Jeff in Monken, order to do yeah. that. So Jeff Munkin, right, yeah. is another name. Actually, Fetch over on Rock Chalk Talk, you know, who who runs our Twitter. He's like the biggest Munkin fan <laughs> you could possibly find. He's been pushing for Munkin, I think, for about four years now, ever since Beatty got hired. So, um, wow. yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, yeah, I, I do think – there definitely would be an advantage to having someone that they could start talking about on the national broadcast. And if that's the case, you know, if it's going to be less miles or, or a guy like Todd Graham, um, you definitely want to do that sooner rather than later because they are available now at this point and you want to get that publicity out there as soon as possible. So, all right. I think that's enough about the coaching search. Uh, I don't think that there's really any other actual updates that we can give at this point. So <laughs> let's go ahead and jump in. Um, obviously the most recent game against Kansas state, you know, they have all kinds of um, problems in that game. That was a very ugly game, I think, to watch for everybody. Um, you know, I think the biggest takeaway that I got coming out of there, or what I'm hearing the most about, is just how bad the officiating was during that game, um, you know, and how and how more talented, especially the Kansas defense, seemed to be than, than Kansas State. Do, do you agree with either of those statements? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think that uh, Kansas is, weirdly a more talented team like by a lot than Kansas State right now and I also think uh yeah I, I think officiating was a factor in the game I definitely don't think it was the, bit, the biggest factor I thought you know both ways you saw you know again not trying to disparage or be overly critical especially if coaches that are on the way out but I, I think you saw in the first half maybe the I, maybe the worst half of coached football I've ever seen in my life uh terrible fourth down decision making K-State a team that has a great rushing attack that could run all over Kansas, uh, comes out throwing on the first drive, punts in weird situations. David Beatty with two of the most conservative fourth down decisions basically ever, uh, once on a you know fourth and one inside like the five-yard line and the other one. I mean, it was literally the end of the half. They had you know a free play from the 40-yard line to either try a Hail Mary or right. go with the wind at their back, and they don't even get a playoff. And maybe, maybe that was conservative. Beatty said after the game, you know, you can't turn the ball over in that situation, which honestly I would extremely disagree with. I think that's you can because then the half ends, so you just right. take a shot there. But uh, Peyton Mender said after the game that they were actually telling him to throw a Hail Mary. So one way or another, I mean, just a complete, complete disaster of a sequence there. And, and then second half, I thought it was the same. You know, you can point to two, you know, 70-yard KU runs being taken off the board. I would point to, and I – I'll put this in my post game, kind of my wrap up column. That you know, last year against K State in 2017, KU had a fourth down. It was an obvious go for it situation. They were down 10. They chose the punt. K State made them pay, and it ended up costing them even a chance to uh, to win that game. And and it wasn't an identical situation this year. I think KU was maybe up three or so, had like that same fourth and four, or whatever. And this, they, you know, but it kind of represented a chance at like reprieve a chance that, hey, you've made these mistakes over four years. You're on the way out. Just let it go, man. You know, right. go for it on a fourth down. Do it. And, and the fact that they made the same decision and the same results happened, I thought it was a very full-circle game. And, and quite frankly, that, that Peyton Mender snap, you know, or that fumble at the end of the game, 
reminded me of Montel Cozart the first game of Beatty's career when, you know, he fumbles the ball trying to spike it and KU doesn't get off a shot at a field goal to, to potentially tie a game. Yeah, and that was, if I remember right, that first game, he, he fumbled the ball, was trying to spike it, and when he went to go pick it up, his knee was already on the ground, right? If that, yep, yep. Yeah, okay. Right. So yeah, it's very reminiscent of that, like, in a, in a, a normal situation, you think you'd at least get something decent. Like it goes absolutely as wrong as it possibly can. So, you know, the, the one thing I had, or the one big problem that I had officiating wise was just how inconsistent they were with penalties. You know, you, they, you looked at those two holds that brought back the two 70 yard runs for, for Kansas, but on the touchdown run that Kansas State had going in, you had the exact same situation where number 98 for, for Kansas was being held the exact same way that the other guys were being held. So either, you know, either you call it all the time or you don't call it at all. Yeah. Obviously there was plenty of other stuff going wrong that could have swung the game. Um, but you know, just how, how, I mean, you, you obviously focus on what happened later in the game. I just I thought it was entirely inconsistent the entire game long. I mean, mm-hmm. there were times where Kansas benefited from the inconsistent officiating, but I, I think that's one of the worst I've seen on the football field in a long, long time. Yeah, I, I think you could say execution all around. I would agree, by the way. I didn't think it was a particularly well-officiated uh, game. And I thought it hurt Kansas uh, absolutely at times, but I would also say this. I mean, the second of those back-to-back runs, I actually thought the first one was a hold uh, on the cool Herbert, but I thought on the Puka one, uh, I did not think that was a hold at all. But right. what I thought was, I, I mean, quite frankly, one of the worst things you could ever do uh, was Maven Saunders picking up the referee's flag, getting that 15-year penalty, because what, what's going through my head at the time was, wow, that was a really questionable holding call. I wonder if they might pick up that flag and not call the hold. And obviously they did still call the hold, but by, by doing that, I mean, he clinched a 15-yard penalty. The referees called that, by the way, after the play was dead on the 15-yarder, which was to the benefit of KU because if they had, you know, it would have been like 15 yards from the end of the run. The fact of the matter is that was during the play. And if they had picked up that 10-yard holding flag, my guess is K-State would have argued and successfully lobbied for that play to come back a long way. I just thought that was one of the most undisciplined plays I mean, like I said, I think that the execution in that game, players, coaches, officials, was about as bad as you will ever see in a football game, and it, that's why it looked as ugly as it was. Well, and I think, I think honestly, the the problems with the execution had to deal with just how emotional the game was. Like everyone was talking about which team was going to get the emotional edge. You know, was was Kansas State going to be? you know, fighting to try to keep their, their head coach's job for him. Um, you know, was Kansas going to be super emotional and use that as a boost because it was David Beatty's first game after being fired, the emotional, you know, nature of the rivalry game, that, that kind of stuff. What I saw was everybody got to the point where they just, they lost control. They, they lost their composure because of how emotional everybody was about the game for all of those reasons. And so we saw a lot of poor execution from both teams because of that, you know, we we saw guys getting frustrated and doing stupid things all the time. There was a few unsportsmanlike conduct or like late penalties that ended up happening because a guy got frustrated and did something that he shouldn't have. You know, the Maven Saunders one is a specific example of that. And honestly, I thought it was absolutely hilarious when I when I, when I heard about it, just because oh, sure. my understanding was was, was well, I actually heard two different stories, and, and and maybe you can tell me which one actually happened. I heard one that he had like picked it up and tried to like tuck it in the front of his jersey. Um, uh, to 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 hide it from them, hoping that they wouldn't see it. Another one that I heard was that he just walked over to it and just stepped on it with both of his cleats and just stood there and waited and hoped that nobody would see that the flag was sitting there uh, because he was standing on top of it. Do you know which one of those actually happened? 
Yeah, so he picked up the flag and, like, he ran with it, like, a good ways, and then he dropped it and, like, covered it up and then I think eventually kicked it away. Uh, but, like, I, I don't <laughs> – like, it was hilarious. Like, do not get me wrong. When it happened, like, I think we were all, like, laughing, thinking it was hilarious. But I, I would also say, like like I said, I, I think it was a, a crazy, crazy, crazy mistake. That's an, it's an interesting uh, point you bring up, though, about the emotionality of the game because, well, I'm not necessarily sure that would, you know, account for, like, Bill Snyder going pass, 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 pass on the first drive of the game. I do think, like, I think I think you probably probably saw some people lose a little bit of control because of how much that game meant to both programs. You know, surprisingly, one guy who actually played pretty well had another drop touchdown in the game until the final play, of course. You know, I thought it was Peyton Bender. I thought he did a good job. And then, you know, to, for, for the game to end for him, I mean, the way it did just had to be, you know, absolutely brutal. And it happens, like, I think you saw that same play happen in the NFL later that day. I can't remember who it was, but, like, in a decisive, like, fourth-quarter play. Obviously, Jameis Winston famously had one of those, too. But that screen, as Jesse Newell pointed out, that screen was open, and Puka Williams probably gets that thing inside the red zone at least, uh, if not beyond, you know, if that, if that thing gets completed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we actually were surprised with how well of a game he played other than, I mean, like – obviously other than the last play where he fumbled the ball, but you know, his stat line would have looked a whole lot better if receivers had been able to actually catch the ball that, that was thrown to them. There was at least one that would have been a walk-in touchdown. And then that other one that you're talking about. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they, they definitely left a lot of points out there that would have made the difference. Um, all right. Any other final thoughts about the, the Kansas state game? Uh, not, not really. I, I think we got most of it out there. I, I just think the biggest thing is, you know, to play, I mean, David Biddy has two weeks left in the season, and we saw when Doug Meacham was kind of on his last stand that West Virginia game, that was about the most aggressively KU had played, and KU was within a touchdown and could have had the ball if a, if a you know coin flip call and an interception goes the other way going into the fourth quarter against the second-best team in the Big 12. I think that's a clear example of if you're the underdog, you need to be aggressive, you need to take risks and go for it. I mean, KU failed on some of the risks it took early against West Virginia, and that was only a 16-point game at the end, and like I said, would have been a one-touchdown game with KU having the ball going into the fourth, you know, if the call goes the other way. So, you know, I don't understand the return to conservatism, you know, after the firing pending the end of the season at Beatty, but if I were advising him what to do for the last two games, I would say let it go, you know, leave your punter, Kyle Thompson, and even Donovan Gagan, the backup punter, Say leave them both at home, just go for it on every down. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see that. We've been telling him for years, honestly, that he needs to be more aggressive, um, even when it wasn't him calling the play, supposedly. So, um, all right, so last final thought before we get out of here for the night. Are you expecting anything from this Oklahoma game other than Kansas to get absolutely creamed on national television? You know, I, I someone had told me the line was 28 points, and when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's a lot lower than I would have expected. And then I saw the line, I believe it was 38 points. Uh, oh, and, and the fact of the matter is, I still couldn't bet on Kansas. because, And, and so I do a show, The Drive, it's, it's on WIDW, and, and like we have to pick these games. And like I was looking at that, and I was like, Kansas's defense is good. Like Kansas's defense is actually good. And I know I disagree with pretty much every KU fan in the world on this, but I think uh, Clint Bowen has, has coached his bleep off this year, and I think he is, uh, I think he has actually done a tremendous job with this defense and completely reformed it into one of the best five, four or five defenses in the Big 12. 
uh, which I think is really impressive. So um, I, I actually think, like, defensively, it's almost like insulting to Kansas that you would put that line up there. But, I mean, then you remember, like, what the Oklahoma offense is and just how much better Oklahoma is. You know, Oklahoma is one of the most elite programs in the nation or, you know, one of the – they're a college football, football playoff contender that clearly going to have a talent advantage, clearly going to have a coaching advantage, clearly going to have, I mean, an advantage in pretty much every position on the field. So, uh, you know, barring like one or two. So, yeah, I, I – you would, I think, have to expect that. You know, and Kansas did itself no favors last year, obviously – handshake gate or whatever will be on everyone's mind. So I don't expect Oklahoma to take it easy either, especially because, you know, KU basically cost TCU a spot in the college football playoffs a few years back just by playing them close. Right. And if I'm the co, if I'm, you know, Lincoln Riley, if I'm anyone playing Kansas, I show them that film and say, Hey, like it's all fun and well, you can joke about Kansas, whatever you play these guys close, you will screw yourselves in the long run. So, you know, I'd expect Oklahoma to be fired up at home and I expect it to be a blowout. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm looking at the line right now, and it's down at 35 and a half, and maybe that's just the, the different place that has the line. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm fully expecting Oklahoma to blow Kansas out in this, in this game, um, you know, by at least, at least three touchdowns. Um, but their, their defense is actually really bad as well. And so I think Kansas has an opportunity to actually score more points offensively, I think, than they have the rest of the entire season, except for maybe like the Central Michigan or Rutgers games. I'm not, I'm trying to remember how many of those points were actually offensive and how much were defensive. Yeah. But they could get their highest Big 12 output in terms of scoring um, from the offense and still lose by at least three touchdowns against Oklahoma. But, so Yeah, I mean, they put, they put up 28 against Oklahoma State and feasibly, I mean, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but Oklahoma is good enough to beat you 65-28, at which point that would be what a thirty-seven point whatever, and that would that would once again cover that line that you just said, which is kind of funny to think about. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean it would be abs- absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, I'm actually trying to look and make sure that all of those were actually offensive touchdowns. Um, yeah, really uh, there were three three pick sixes, if I'm not mistaken, three. The ones against well, I'm, I'm talking about against Oklahoma State. You were you were saying they put up oh, twenty-eight, oh, right? Oh. Oklahoma, yeah, the Oklahoma State ones, I believe, were all offensive. Like, maybe yep. one wasn't, but yeah, uh, it was, it Stanley was, had three passing touchdowns. Yeah, it was three passing touchdowns from Carter, Stanley, and then uh, Puka ran a 60-yard one in. I think it was, like, right after the start of the second half. So, so yeah, I mean, it could be their biggest offensive output. You know, I could see them getting 31 points against Oklahoma, but they might lose 69-31 to 31 or something like that. So, um, that should be fun. <laughs> Hopefully, like we were talking about earlier, they have a new head coach at that point, and we can talk about that instead of how bad Kansas is getting demolished on national television. So, the the one thing I will say with confidence, though, it will not be as bad as getting completely destroyed by TCU forty-one to nothing <laughs> on national television. So maybe, maybe you know, just, just I, wait and see. I, I mean, the the, mar- the margin might be bigger, but I can pretty much guarantee Kansas will not go scoreless in this game. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, or a running clock. You, see, you could pretty much guarantee there won't be a running clock that, that the too. coaches yeah. agree to, and then later one of them says he didn't agree to. Exactly. All right. Well, Scott, thank you again for 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 joining me tonight. Can you just give everyone a reminder of where they can find you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Kansas dot twenty four seven Sports, the best place uh, to find. You know, if you're interested in reading any of our work, it's the twenty four seven Sports site, KansasPod.net, like you mentioned, uh, and then on Twitter at Chase and Scott. Uh, as always, love interacting with people, especially in the boards, and uh, and hearing some feedback on 
airplanes and coaching searches and people who may have hopped gates that were not in the media that may get some people in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and, and one final thing, because you actually brought it up earlier. I, I actually had seen online where you were named as the, the new co-host for The Drive. Um, how did you land that sweet gig, taking over for, for Tom Keegan? Well, Tom is obviously a good friend of mine, um, so just complete nepotism. But, um, <laughs> no, it was, it was a cool opportunity, and, and working with Tim Fitzgerald, who's also at at 24-7 Sports was a, was a great opportunity. Uh, it, it, I mean, really nothing more than it was a good fit in the right time. And obviously Tom's in Boston now, and he's been absolutely kill it up there. I saw some people wondering what was going on with him on Twitter today. I, he just got an awesome job opportunity in Boston to be a columnist. And, I mean, Lawrence has an elite K basketball program. Imagine having having that program in basically every professional sport. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think Tom's going to have a hell of a time up there. and. And he's settling, uh, settling in there, and he's, he's really going to like it. So complete luck is, is how I uh, lucked my way into that. Tom having a lot of success was how I lucked my way into hosting a TV show. <laughs> awesome. Sounds great. All right. Well, once again, thank you, Scott. Have a good night. All right. Thank you all very right. much. And that's all we have for you today on the football program. Next, we're going to jump over. I was able to reach out to Carrington Harrison. Uh, radio host over at 610 Sports. He joined me to talk a little bit of basketball. We didn't just focus on Kansas. We did talk about a little bit of the Adidas trial, um, which, you know, at at this point is over, but it's still going to have plenty of implications for us through the rest of the year, I think. Um, Talked a little bit about Duke and Kentucky and the other national programs that there are sitting out there, and then, of course, took some time to talk about Kansas and all the wonderful things that happen here at KU. So I will get you right on out to that interview. And I'm joined now by Carrington Harrison uh, from from 610 Sports. C-Dot, how are you doing today? Hello. Hey. Oh, my bad. I had it on speaker, and then I hit the <laughs> button, and then I, then, then I lost you talking. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm doing fantastic, man. I'm, I'm happy to be on with you guys. I made fun of KU earlier in Adidas, so I'm shocked that you guys were – have have swallowed your pride and fallen on the sword. <laughs> you know, if I if I refused to have anybody on the podcast that had made a joke about KU and Adidas, I probably wouldn't have any guests anymore. So no, that's fair. And the thing <laughs> is, I think that most of us that make the jokes, we just don't really care. It's just it's not like we can make fun of Kansas very often. Exactly. So this is one opportunity that we can. So I'm going to take full advantage of it. I mean, we already know how this season's going to end. They're going to win the Big 12. They're going to be a one seed in the NCAA tournament, and they're probably going to the Final Four. But I'm getting my jokes off, man. You're not stopping me. Yep, yep, exactly. So, so actually, I, I do kind of want to ask you about your your thoughts on that. I know that people that are in the Kansas City area probably have heard your thoughts on KU and Adidas and the and the trial and all of that. But um, you know, I I haven't personally because I don't live in the area anymore, and I'm I'm very curious to see what your thoughts are on that do you think that there's going to be big penalties coming out of that or uh, do you think we'll see Silvio de Souza play again this year I mean this is a probably a whole separate podcast within (laughs) itself I'll keep the conversation brief I think that what's happening at Kansas is very unfair towards the player and that's very typical of what happens to the NCAA I don't think anything should happen to Bill Self like if you look at the text messages I think Bill Self is just playing the game I think if you want to get a major college athlete on your campus, man, they're not coming because they like your agricultural department. They're not coming because they like your J school. Like, they're coming because there is some incentive to go to college. I think we all know that. So I don't think that Bill Self is doing something that's morally reprehensible. I don't think that Curtis Townsend is doing something that we shouldn't allow. I think we know the true value of the athlete. So I'm all for get your money, young man. Like, I'm never going to hate on that. But the fact of, 
Silvio DeSosa probably isn't going to play at Kansas anymore, but nothing's going to happen to Bill Self and nothing's going to happen to Curtis Townsend. To me, it's just wildly unfair. Everybody was fine with the transaction. Silvio got what he wanted. Self got what he wanted. Townsend got what he wanted. So either everybody's in trouble or nobody is in trouble. But it just upsets me that all the time we only penalize and demonize the athletes and we do nothing to the adults in the process. It's just wildly unfair to me. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with what the federal government had to do to make their case there, you know, was say, oh, well, Kansas, and by extension, then, then Bill Self and, and any of the other coaches, you know, were, were, were the victim in this case, that they were being taken advantage of by, you know, either the players or the, the Adidas people or any, or any of that. I mean, I, honestly, I always thought the, the, the case itself was a stretch to begin with. Everybody knows what happens. Everybody knows players are, you know, getting in in inducements they're being enticed by all the the shoe companies and you know everybody knows what the shoe companies are doing in terms of running these camps and you know trying to get the guys from their camps to sign with their schools and all of that like there, there's no surprise for anyone there the fact that you know a lot of the a lot of the testimony in there was made that clear that you know everybody thought yeah sure it's it's against ncaa rules but it's not wrong that we're doing it it's just the ncaa doesn't like it because it doesn't you know make them amateurs we're not you know, we're, we're not doing something that's illegal. We're not doing something that that is morally wrong. It's just the way life is in the in, in the college basketball game. No, ex- uh, absolutely. And I was listening to Dan Wetzel. He went up on Monty Jones podcast last week and he was making the point And Dan Wetzel follows this thing as closely as anybody. He was at the trial every day. They weren't worried about the feds. Like if you listen back and you read the stuff, it's not like Jim Gatto's worried about the federal government or Gasnola is worried about the federal government. They're worried about the NCAA in this scenario. I don't think they ever thought that you could potentially go to jail for wire fraud in this because technically what they're doing isn't illegal. Dan Wetzel made a really, really good point that, you know, if you had a 14-year-old niece or nephew and they came to you and said, hey, Google wants to give me $100,000 for my idea and they want to relocate our family to move to Silicon Valley, and they want me to come work for them because I'm the brightest mind in the tech company, that'd be on the front page of the star. That would be a major story that Google thought so highly of this 14-, 15-year-old kid to set them and their family up in a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. The same thing happens in sports all the time, and we make it seem like it's the worst thing in the world. So I don't want any KU fan to think that I'm on a very serious thing like I've like I'm poking, I'm poking at KU. Man, they're playing the game here. Bill Self oh, yeah. makes four million dollars a year. Think about how many people in the city of Lawrence make money off the basketball team. So I'm all for Silvio DeSosa and Billy Preston and Josh Jackson. I hope, I hope that they open up a Charger dealership and give them to you when you <laughs> sign up on campus. I legitimately do not care. But it just frustrates me that in situations like Mike Gundy. When he's like saying it's a snowflake culture to transfer and all this kind of stuff. Hold on. Like, why are we calling the players snowflakes when Brad Underwood, Brad Underwood has coached at three different universities the last four years. I don't hear anybody. I don't hear anybody saying that Brad Underwood is a snowflake because he wasn't willing to tough it out at Stephen F. Austin or he left Oklahoma State after one basketball season. But for him, that's doing what's best for your family. And I'm trying to advance in my career. But, man, the moment a player wants to do this stuff, it's the worst thing in the world. I just hate the overall hypocrisy of it more than anything. Oh, yeah. I, I, I definitely agree with that. Well, 
with that in mind, let's go ahead and actually jump to the to the season itself. Um, obviously, Kansas entered the year ranked number one in the AP poll. Everybody has really high expectations for them, uh, you know, just with how deep this team is. Um, but really, I guess that that first opening night, uh, you know, we had the Champions Classic where Kansas goes and is up by 17 against Michigan State. And everybody's like, you know, this is why they're the number one team that, you know, and then Duke comes out and completely demolishes Kentucky. I want to kind of get your overall thoughts on kind of, you know, one, how that event went. I thought it was phenomenal. But um, but also, like, was was the, the Duke-Kentucky game more of what, you know, Duke can do moving forward or just how bad Kentucky has looked compared to expectations at the beginning of the year? No, I think that was way more about Duke than it was about Kentucky. I think we know enough from watching Kentucky that, I mean, aside from the Anthony Davis kind of years and the John Wall years, Kentucky's going to be much better in February than they are at the early part of the season where they're kind of getting by on talent and then they kind of evolve as a team as the season goes on. I think we're seeing the best team in college basketball in Duke that we've seen since that undefeated Kentucky team in the regular season. I mean, they have the rivals top three recruits on their team. I mean, Zion Williamson is a legitimately once in a generational kind of basketball player, and he's not the best basketball player on their team. That might be RJ Barrett. Like Duke is just so ridiculous when it comes to talent that it was just a buzzsaw. And I mean, Zion Williamson shot incredibly well. Duke shot really well from the field. Kentucky didn't shoot very well. Shocking. They didn't shoot very well in a, in a big time game. (laughs) Right. I just don't really think I, – I don't really think anything differently about Kentucky. I think a lot differently about Duke and how difficult it's going to be to beat them. The biggest takeaway I really had from the whole uh, Champions Classic, aside from how good Duke was, is why is Michigan State in the Champions Classic? Like, it just seems very clear to me that Duke, Kansas, and Kentucky are on a different level than what Michigan State is. Michigan State is a really, really good program. But Michigan State is like the perfect team to play in November. They're always overseeded. Like, Michigan State's not the 10th best team in the country right now. They might be when the season's over. They're never the top 10 team in November. Duke will always beat them. Michigan State beat, or excuse me, uh, Kentucky beats them. Kansas beats them. It's a nice win in your RPI that's going to get better as the season evolves, as Michigan State gets a whole lot better. Man, swap out Michigan State and put in Arizona. Or at least put in, like, Gonzaga to give them an opportunity for those early kind of wins. I'm tired of watching Michigan State lose in the Champions Classic. Yeah, it's actually funny because this is actually the first year that Kansas beat Michigan State in the, in the, in the Champions Classic. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with either, you know, Katie's been down or they were just starting slow. Um you know, I mean, I, I guess Michigan State kind of they are really kind of the throw in there um, when you think about it, just because, you know, o- originally, from my understanding, the plan was to have, you know, Kansas, Duke, Kentucky, and they wanted someone like North Carolina who would more naturally fit into this kind of thing. But obviously with Duke and North Carolina in the same conference, they don't want to have a basically a, a conference matchup early in the mm-hmm. season and they don't want to ever have two of those teams be locked out of playing against each other. So. Um, because then that would mean like, you know, Kansas and Kentucky would never play if, if Duke and North Carolina could never play each other. So, I mean, it, it made sense. They had to find someone else. And I guess Izzo was the big draw for bringing him, you know, for, for bringing Michigan state. Um, you know, I, I do think that coaches kind of drive college basketball a lot more than any individual player, at least over, you know, time, like over a decade, you're much, we're much more likely to talk about a coach and how his effect on a program instead of individual players that came to a program in succession. So but, it makes sense. I, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, the draw in college basketball is certainly the coaches. 
I just feel like the Champions Classic is a little bit different. Like, you're right, this is Kansas' first time beating Michigan State, but now Michigan State has lost to all three of the teams in the Champions Classic the last three years. So every other team in the in the thing has beaten them. I just think we see as we get more and more ingrained into the one-and-done culture, that's what the Champions Classic is becoming. The Champions Classic is your first time to see Andrew Wiggins, your first time to see Jabari Parker, your first time to see Zion Williamson, your first time to see the big one-and-dones. Michigan State never gets them. <laughs> like, Kansas gets the big one-and-dones. Kentucky gets them. Duke gets them. Michigan State never gets them. Then I'm with you. College basketball as a whole is about the celebration of the coaches and these guys that have been there for a long time. The Champions Classic, to me, is a celebration of this is the best young NBA prospects in the NBA are in college basketball. But if you're an NBA scout, you don't need to go anywhere else for this one night. Come here and you'll see, you know, seven of the top nine prospects heading to the NBA. That's what the championship classic has become to me. Michigan State just never fits that. Aside from Jaron Jackson and aside from Miles Bridges, they haven't had anybody worthy of playing in that. Like, to me, Arizona just makes a lot more sense. Or UCLA. They just make more sense for this event than Michigan State does. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely agree. They were kind of the, wait, why are they there? Like when I first heard it announced. And, I mean, it's kind of borne out that way. But it's, you know, you, you had to pick somebody when you started. And obviously it would be a bad look to replace them with someone else now, especially when the event's been so successful. Um, so, I mean, I guess we're kind of stuck with them at this point unless they ever decided for whatever reason to pull out. And I don't think that that's realistic. So, all right. So let's, let's move on from the champions classic. I did, you know, I, I did, well, actually I had one more comment about Duke. The one thing that kind of concerns me about Duke is, you know, they've got those three and RJ Barrett, Zion Williamson, and then, uh, and then Cam Reddish are the, are like the main three that have come out there. I wonder what happens to a, a team like Duke. If one of those guys has an off night though, um, you know, it, with with basically three main contributors and everybody else is kind of just hanging on at that point, um, you know, you you have to wonder if if RJ Barrett has an off game, can Zion Williamson pick up the entire team enough to make up all of that lost production and push them over the top, especially if they're playing against a really good team. I I, I have a little bit of concern about that you know, in terms of them moving forward. I, I do think. That's why there's at least a question about, you know, is Duke the best team or is like a team like Kansas the best team where Kansas is so deep that even if they're top, you know, three or four guys that have off nights, you know, you can put in player six, seven and eight and they can go off that night and they can carry the team. So, you know, it's a completely different style, I think, when you have three main guys who are so phenomenal as opposed to such a huge, deep cast in a Kansas team where anybody could be the the, the guy that goes off that night and, and ends up carrying the team. I agree with you that I think right now, if we're making a tier system, Duke's the clear best team in the country as of now, but we got a lot of basketball left. I think Kansas is the second best team in the country. Like, I'm a firm believer of in this one-and-done era – you need a combination of a couple things. You need some experience. I think you saw Vic's experience uh, yesterday against Vermont. He's an experienced player. You need a little bit of that. You need a guy that's probably going to be a lottery pick or should be a lottery pick. I think Kansas has that. And you need to probably have, like like most basketball teams, seven to eight really good players. So in that scenario you're talking about, somebody has an off night, you can step up. Or if you're not going to do that, you need to do the Kentucky from a couple years ago with Anthony Davis. I guess it's more than a couple years ago now at this point. Or like Duke. Just hit you with our starting five. You're not beating us. 
if you have Justice Winslow, Jaleel Okafor, Tyus Jones, if that's your starting five, man, I'm sorry, you're not beating that team. You remember that uh, Kentucky team that had Anthony Davis and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. Like, you're just not beating that team. I think that's what Duke is trying to do on one side of. All right, maybe we're not as deep as Kansas one through eight. But if we have an off day with these three players, Kansas is just because they can put Mitch Lightfoot in to give you 10 minutes. That doesn't matter in this kind of game because we're just going to beat you with having three of the five best players on the court. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, and, and, and really what it comes down to is, you know, if, if one of those players is off, the other two might be able to pick up enough. But if if you can somehow, you know, have one guy who's just off that day and then another one that you're bothering a lot so that he can't pick up the slack. You know, you can throw a bunch of bodies with a team like Kansas without a huge drop off in production. And that gives you a good opportunity, obviously, until they actually play each other. There's really no way to know who's going to and, you know, and they could play like a a 10 game series. And I'm pretty sure that it would probably be split, you know, six, four, one way or five, five. So, I mean, they're both really good teams. They both have big, you know, advantages that are built in. And really, it's just going to come down to when they finally do play, because I'm convinced that they're going to meet up in the tournament at some point, whether it's, you know, a championship game or a final four with how the, the actual bracket drops. Um, you know, it's just going to matter of who is able to get lucky enough for their, you know, their, their one advantage to weigh out um, over the other. So I'm definitely excited for the season as a whole. The one thing I did want to ask you about though, do you see anybody giving Kansas a serious challenge of the big 12 this year? I'm happy you asked me that. There were probably two things I wanted to talk about when we come when I came on here is, I feel like with Kansas State, we are not remembering what seed they were last year in the NCAA tournament and what happened. Like, I think Kansas State's a good team. I'm not denying that. Right. But Kansas State was a nine seed last year in the NCAA tournament, and they got the greatest second-round draw that you can have in the history of the NCAA tournament. That's why they went to the Elite Eight. Now you beat Kentucky, and I will not take that game away from you. And you never should apologize in the NCAA tournament about who is in your bracket in front of you. But last year's K-State team was the fourth best team in the Big 12. They were a nine seed. They got a 16 seed in the NCAA tournament. I'm not surprised that they're off to a slow start. Like, I think we see time and time again, there is normally a clear division between Kansas and the other teams in the Big 12. But I know we try to talk ourselves into Trey Young. We try to talk ourselves into Oklahoma State has Marcus Smart. Like, stop it. It's obvious who's winning the Big 12 this year. K is going to win the Big 12 by two, probably three games this year. K State's uh, K State's going to get like a five seed. KU is going to get a one seed, and the balance will be restored in the Big 12. It's it's always funny because it seems like every year we pick a team that we think is going to be the biggest challenger for Kansas. That team falls off. There's another team that surprises everybody who ends up challenging them, at least making it close as we get towards the end. And then Kansas pulls away and wins the league by at least two or three games. Like last year, that was Texas Tech. Like they can't, you know, people thought they were going to be decent last year, but I don't think anybody expected them to be as good as they were, you know, and they, they really pushed Kansas to the end. But then with like four games left, Kansas, you know, got the lead that they needed to be comfortable and, and to coast to the end. And of course, injury issues with, with Texas Tech kind of sealed it at the end. Um, you know, every year there's, there's one or two teams that we think are going to be the biggest challengers and they usually don't pan out but somebody else jumps up to at least make the, the race interesting. I, I'm, I'm curious who you think like might be for those roles. Obviously Kansas state is like the one that everybody thinks is going to challenge them this year that I, I honestly don't think that they're going to be up there either. Um, I think West Virginia is another team that kind of fits that role. Everybody just assumes that West Virginia is going to be a good team this year and, you know, be second or third in the big 12. 
I, I, I just don't know that they have enough this year to be able to kind of overcome all of that and stick up there. Is there any particular team that maybe is like picked for the middle of the pack in the Big 12 you think is going to be a lot better that might actually push Kansas towards the end of the season before they um, obviously fall off? Yeah, I'm not even trying to dance your question because I, I, I understand the sentiment towards West Virginia. They just lost the Buffalo. This this is a typical West Virginia year that they'll knock you off at home because of the environment, but they're going to lose some games on the road that make you scratch your head, and they're going to be like a four or five seed. Same thing with Kansas State. I think what kind of frustrates us non-KU fans when we have these conversations about KU fan, or like KU's regular season is, I think KU basketball fans are smart individuals. They always seem to forget that these three things always exist with Kansas. They have the best coach in the conference. It's not even close. Like right. It's not like it's the ACC where, all right, Coach K is the best coach, but Roy Williams is the first ballot Hall of Famer, and then you got you know a couple other really good coaches. It's not close when it comes to coaching. It's not close when it comes to home court advantage. Like Bramlage Coliseum, great home court advantage. Hilton Coliseum, great home court advantage. West Virginia, whatever their stadium's called, great home court advantage. Man, I'm sorry, Allen Fieldhouse is just a much better home court than that. And Kansas just gets better basketball players. So if you get better talent, if you got better coaching, if you have a better home court where we agree, college basketball, home court is probably the most valuable in all the major American sports. Right. It's not, come on now, like it's not close. It's not close in this. That's why KU's been able to consistently dominate it. That maybe Kansas doesn't have the best player in the conference. Because we've seen other years they haven't had the best player in the conference. Right. They always have the best one through eight. And if that's the case, and they got the best coach, and they're still playing games out on Fieldhouse last time I checked, no other teams win in that league. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and again, I mean, I, I think – I think part of the reason that the Big 12 gets a bad rap, obviously, is because Kansas is up at the top all the time. But, you know, my my hypothesis is, has always been with that, that, you know, like a, the ACC has Duke and North Carolina that are consistently up towards the top. Maybe one doesn't, you know, even if even if Duke always won, like UNC would be pushing them the entire time and they're always highly ranked. You know, and then you have teams like Virginia that are that are consistently up there at the top, too. Um, and so everybody thinks, oh, well, we've got, you know, Duke's pretty good. North Carolina's pretty good. Virginia's pretty good, um, especially nationally. So, like, oh, the ACC must be absolutely phenomenal league. Um, but if you look at, like, the lower tiers of it, a lot of times they have some really bad teams in that league, too. Whereas the Big 12, a lot of them are, like, most of the teams in the Big 12 are are very decent squads. You know, they're they're hovering around 40 to 50 in Ken Palm consistently. Um you know, Kansas is always the clear up top, but every single year, the team that gets closest to Kansas is always a different team. You know, one year it's Oklahoma, the next year it's Texas, next year it's Iowa State, then it's Kansas State. Like, it's never two teams that are consistently vying for the top spots. You can always point and say that there's two good teams. It's hard to always know who that other, you know, fairly good or, or you know, maybe potentially great team is going to be coming out of that conference. Um, obviously, nobody ever like jumps up and stays up with Kansas, but we consistently have additional teams that are, that are kind of pushing at that level, trying to get up there, you know, and getting higher seeds in the, in the tournament than you would expect, but it's never the same team year after year. And so that gives the big 12 in general, a bad rap. And honestly makes it hard to imagine anybody can get any kind of sustained, sustained success that they need in order to be able to push Kansas for the league title. And that kind of leads into a different conversation of can you have a great conference without a lot of great teams? Like, I think the Big 12 is a very fun and entertaining conference. I struggle to call it great. 
I think Kansas is a truly great program. Kansas is one of the five best, three best. Maybe you think they're the best. I'm sure people on your podcast think they're the best. So they are. Let's for the for the sake of this, they're the best. They're the best basketball program in America. Where would you rank the second best program in America in the Big 12? Whoever you think it is, if you think it's West Virginia, are they a top 20 program? Are they a top 25 program? Like, how would you rank their basketball program? That's not really the case in any other, like, major, major conference. Like, there's one great team in the Big 12, and then there's, like, five really good teams. There's no shame in being really good. Oklahoma's had a lot of success when it comes to basketball. Oklahoma State has had a lot of success. Iowa State has had success. So there's some really good programs. I'm not trying to, to trying to diminish what they accomplished. But we look at the uh, but we look at the ACC. I mean, there's Duke and Carolina are legitimately great programs. Maryland, when it was in the conference, was a legitimately great program. In the SEC, Florida has had success. They won multiple national championships. Kentucky has had great success. Like we've just seen great teams consistently in those other conferences. That just hasn't happened. I mean, think about this entire run for KU. We've seen one team make the final four out of this entire run from the Big 12. Like that just kind of goes to show you maybe the, the huge divide between KU and the other teams in the league. Well, and, and, and I think what you hit at is kind of the, the, the important point. There's only one consistently great program, but there's routinely other great teams from year to year. The problem is it's never the same the same school. And so the program itself doesn't jump up to that level. But you can consistently have – multiple Big 12 teams that are up in, you know, the top 10, top 15 at Ken Palm, where you can consider that to be a great team for that individual year. You don't have what you have in some other conferences where you have, you know, it's the same teams every year. And so the entire program looks great over time, as opposed to what you have in the Big 12. You always have, you have Kansas, the one great program, and then you always have another two or three that are great teams in any individual year, but they don't get that benefit of the doubt because they weren't the great teams the previous year. And so, uh, I think I think can or college basketball is and and I guess college football too like college is uniquely I think positioned in terms of people definitely evaluate a, an individual team based off of the context of the entire program you know like in 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 the NFL we we routinely talk about individual teams and it only takes like a couple years for a team to start being thought of as one of the greater teams in the league right uh, but like college college basketball, college football, you have to consistently be a really good team for a good 10 years before people think of you as a great program. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the difference in college is just in the NFL, everybody has the same resources. Like the salary cap is the salary cap. The Chiefs, just because they're in market 30, they are not at a disadvantage when it comes to New York just because it's a bigger media market. But I think in college, we just see it's hard to sustain the level. Like, Kansas basketball, like the level that they're at, is just so far ahead of some programs, you will literally never catch what they've accomplished. But think about how good Gonzaga's been. We agree, Gonzaga with Mark Few has been a tremendous program. Man, the gap between Kansas and Gonzaga, I think, is pretty big, and that normally doesn't that normally doesn't transfer coaches. Like Oregon had a tremendous run in college football. Man, when they got rid of Chip Kelly, it was kind of over for Oregon. Boise State was a great program with Chris Peterson. Once that was over, it was over, and then that kind of transferred to Washington, and then, then they've become a really good program. That's kind of just what happens in college in college athletics, that, like, your blue bloods and your elite programs stay your elite programs. Maybe somebody on the underling, like, 
they can kind of rise up and compete for a little bit and they can be really entertaining. Like Oregon was really entertaining and we've seen like Wichita state, you know, have a chance to go to final four or Butler where they went to back-to-back championships. But once that coach leaves, it's over. And I, I think that's maybe why the perception in college athletic, it doesn't shift the same way it does in the NFL. Yeah. I, I think that all of that's fair. So, all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and leave it there for the night. I did just have one final thought. I just wanted your, uh, your, your thoughts on on the Missouri basketball season. Well, it's not good. I mean, just to go ahead and tell you that it's not good. Uh, I actually had one more thing I wanted to talk about uh, with you. I don't really want to talk about Missouri because they just depressed me. Um, <laughs> I went to, uh, I went to Hilton Coliseum. Uh, last weekend, Missouri actually played at Iowa State. Right. Iowa State venue is incredibly average. Like, I was thinking it was going to be this, like, I was hearing about Hilton Magic, and I'm like, I got to go to Hilton Coliseum. So I gassed my car up, and I drove to Hilton Coliseum. It's it's Bramlage. It's just a very average college basketball. Now, I'm not saying the crowd wasn't into it and it wasn't a fun environment, but I think what makes Kansas's basketball, like what makes Allen Fieldhouse so special is from the moment you walk in the door, they beat you over the head with history. And they beat you over the head with, we are excellent at college basketball. Like you can't walk around Allen Fieldhouse and look right and look left and not see how great Kansas basketball is from every player that's ever played to the court and the championships. Like Allen Fieldhouse just beats you with history. If you ain't done nothing in your entire program, like Iowa State, you haven't accomplished anything, your little trophy case just looks puny. You know, you haven't done anything. And then you look, and it's just watching basketball in a 1975 arena. Like, I, I was very disappointed at Hilton Coliseum. I just I, – I went in with this, like, I was thinking it was going to be majestic, and I'm going to Hilton Coliseum. And then I see it, and I'm like, this is Bramlage. This is the exact same as Bramlage. <laughs> yeah, you know that that quote is now going to get out all over the place. You're probably going to hear it from Iowa State fans. So. That's what it is. I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying they weren't knowledgeable fans. It was fun. Like I, I had a good time at the game. It was a fun time. But I'm sitting there, I'm looking at their stadium, and I've been to Bramlage, and I've been to Hilton Coliseum. Ames is just Manhattan light. It is the same. Like it is literally like I went there and I understood why they had Farmageddon, why it's a big deal when K State <laughs> plays Iowa State. Because they're they're the same program. They are literally the same program. I, I will say it is definitely different when you have the entire crowd going berserk. Like I mean, I think like when a Kansas comes to town or when you have a really big Big Twelve game. I do think that they step it up another notch. I do agree no. with you. It, it doesn't get to where like Allen Fieldhouse does at any point. No, but I, and, and I, I'm talking way more about the aesthetics of it. I got no issues with the crowd. I've mm. seen. I mean, I, I've been to Big Twelve games at the championship. I was there for this game. I I don't question the crowd at all. I'm talking about the venue. Like the venue right. is just average. Like, I mean, I'm, I know it's a tough comparison, but, like, I've been to Lambeau. And when you go to Lambeau, it's like, golly, this is Lambeau Field, you know? And it's like, this is where Vince Lombardi, and they kind of beat you with the history of it. I went to uh, an Oklahoma football game, and then you walk through Heisman Park, and it's like they have a statue of everybody that's won the Heisman Trophy, and you can see it. And it's like they beat you over the head with history. 
right. would think he ain't got a great history. Your history's average, you know? So then when you go, like, they can't really beat you with that. So they have to kind of beat you with the pageantry of college basketball, which is, you know, the crowd and the cheerleaders and the band, which is cool, but everybody got that. Like, that's not, that's not special. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I, I do think it is a little bit overblown, but, I mean, that has always been kind of the, the draw of the whole Hilton magic. It's always been the crowd and how big the crowd gets into it and everything. Uh, I thought the know, venue was going to be better. Like, I, I was thinking Hilton Coliseum, I was thinking that the venue was going to be special, you know? Like, I, you know, I, I don't think it's Cameron Indoor or nothing like that, but I, I, I just thought the – I thought the stadium itself and like when you walk around, I thought it was going to be cooler once you got there. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's one of the things is that like a lot of people, when they're comparing venues, they'll completely overweight, you know, how the crowd itself seems to elevate the atmosphere of the venue as opposed to just actually looking at the venue itself. There's some pretty, some pretty bad venues in terms of like the actual building itself and the aesthetics of the place that get ranked up really high because, Hey, it's really, it's a really cool experience or it's a unique experience or the crowd can really get jazzed up there. Um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely do think it gets overplayed in terms of just the actual building itself, but the crowd experience there, I think kind of bumps it up at least to where it's, you know, something you can talk about as having to go experience. Um, it's not like obviously with like an, an Allen field house, it's just as, as awe inspiring to go in. And, and like you were saying, look at all the history that's on the walls and everything. Even if the crowd's not there, it's a wonderful place to be in. And it's, you know, it's that kind of awe inspiring place. Um, but you know, there are places that can get to be good college game atmospheres just because of the way that the crowd can get into it. And I, I think that's more what, what follows, like that's how Iowa state's, um, you know, the, the, the Hilton magic and all of that. It's, it's because of the crowd. It's really not because of the actual venue itself. So, yeah. And I, I, I guess maybe I thought maybe I just been spoiled cause I've been to Allen enough. I just thought it was going to kind of beat you. I, I thought it was going to beat you with the history of it. Like, you know, I mean the two college basketball arenas I've been to the most are Mizzou arena and Allen Fieldhouse. like Mizzou arena. They don't have the history that Allen Fieldhouse does. But it's just a nice modern college basketball stadium. Like it's it's actually modeled after the Indiana Pacers stadium. So it's like it's just it's a nice NBA feeling arena for a college basketball game. Like right. you know they don't have a great crowd or nothing like that. But it's just it, it's a nice place to watch a college basketball game. And Allen again, it's a really fun place because the fans are very energetic. The student sections in it. I mean I've been there for big college basketball games, and they've got the history of it. They're like, I've kind of been spoiled, I guess, on both sides. Like, Missouri has a really nice college arena for different reasons than why Kansas has a really nice arena. Yeah, most definitely. All right. Well, CDOT, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. It's, 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 it's been great to have you back on. Um, you know, this is being our 100th episode. I definitely wanted to bring back some of the big guests we've had in the past. And it had been a little bit too long, I think, in terms of getting you back on. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you could join us tonight. Yeah, no problem. Anytime you guys want me to have me, uh, have me on, I assume. You know, Big 12 plays coming up. Um, Kansas will, shockingly, you, you know what always happens. Kansas is going to lose a game on the road. And then, as we were talking about earlier, it's going to be, oh, I mean, Baylor can win the Big 12. Yeah. What's wrong with Kansas? <laughs> I know. And then they're going to play Baylor at home at Allen Fieldhouse. They're going to beat them by 30. And then everybody, like, there's just some cycles that happen during the college basketball season. Like, I always know once a year, I call it the kiss the ring day on the show. Like, Kansas wins another Big 12 championship. And now we have to talk about how impressive the streak is. <laughs> and then we have to share the 
Bill Self has more conference championships than losses at Allen Fieldhouse. Like, I just know once a year I got to prepare myself mentally for that show. <laughs> so, you know, you also got to prepare yourself for Kansas sleepwalk through a game at Allen Fieldhouse, and they only win that game by eight, and then they go on the road, and they lose to a team they're not supposed to lose to, and the yearly freakout, which comes from KU fans. So, I mean, that's coming in like two months. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm used to having to deal with that that yearly freak out. So, so we'll see that when it happens and, and hopefully we'll be able to avoid it this year, but it'll, it'll happen at some point. E- even if it's not a freak out over a loss, it'll be a freak out of, Oh, well they only beat this team by 10 when they should have beat them by it, 20. So yeah, which happens all the time. Like, like I said, KU will play TCU at home and they'll win by five. And it'll be like the worst thing that ever happened to KU fans. I'm telling you, this happens every year. <laughs> all right. Well, that'll, that, that'll do it for tonight. Thanks again. See Thanks, man. All right, have a good one. And that's it for my interview with C. Dot. Up next, our very last segment. I thought, um, you know, I wanted to save probably my most favorite thing for last. Not that I don't enjoy having those other guests on, but back in that first summer that we had this this podcast, we introduced something um, that I thought was going to be a staple of the show for a very very long time that didn't really stick around for too long. Um, but I, I brought back special guest Grad to. Redebut his hot take hyperbole cannon. Um, a little little joke for those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a very long time. Um, essentially, Grad and I take turns firing off this thing, giving you the hottest takes we can come up with. Uh, we we limited ourselves to KU football and KU basketball this this time, but you know I, I do expect to see this back a few more times. So, but I will go ahead and get you right on after that interview with Grad. And I am joined now once again. It's it's been a little while, but uh, I'm joined by Grad. How are you doing tonight, Grad? I'm good. All right. So it being episode 100, I figured we need to do something really, really special. And it's been a long time since we did this, but it was so much fun. We used to do it all the time, especially over that one summer. Um, we are bringing back the hot take hyperbole cannon. For those that aren't familiar, that are pretty new listeners, we had a segment for a while where, you know, Grad would give us a random hot take, just some wildly um, unbelievable statement about one of the KU programs, and we would sit there and discuss whether it was actually a hot take or, you know, if it if it was uh, something that was actually realistic. So. I'm going to let you go ahead and start first, Grad. Um, you, it could be about any of the programs. Uh, it could even be about the coaching search if you want to. Uh, go ahead and hit me with your hottest take. Kansas football will make a bowl next season. Ooh, you kind of stole one of mine. But <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go quite that far. I do think that's that's a, a little too much. My hot take for Kansas football was going to be that they will win more games next year than they won this year, even with a coaching change. Um, which I realize may not actually be that, that hot of a take, but, um, you know, I do think it's, it's maybe pushing it a little too far just with how much talent that they actually lose. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine they're going to have a ton of guys that are going to step up. I, I do think though that that could become realistic pretty quickly, um, depending on what the, the recruiting class looks like. You know, if, if, if the new coach can get in here and can, can, can sign a couple of three and four stars, um, that are going to make a big impact, especially on the defensive end. Uh, then, then I mean, I think that might be realistic, but as it stands right now, I, I just don't see it. Like, what do you, what is your thought? Why do you think that they're going to make a, a bowl game next year? I, I mean, I, I think this year has just showed us that there's really not a giant lack of talent on this team. I mean, I, I wonder where this team would have ended up with just 
average coaching. And if we look at this season, so KU's going to finish three and nine, barring some sort of just biblical level miracle in the last two games. They should have won their opener against an FCS team. They should have won last week against K-State. I mean, KU should have won that game. They outplayed K-State. It basically took a comedy of coaching errors, officiating errors, and execution errors on our side, including a wide-open drop touchdown for us to lose that game by four points. So, really, I mean, David Beatty should have won five games this year. And I think Beatty is probably somewhere between the worst college football coach of all time or maybe just in the top five. And it makes me wonder if whoever the next coach is, obviously is a giant step up. They were, they should have been kind of knocking on the door this year. You look at next year. And I I think with a massive upgrade in coaching, can KU win six games? I I really think uh, they'll win at least two of their non-con games. The the game at Boston college, obviously (laughs) that kind of scares me Um, just because, you know, Boston college has been pretty solid recently. After that, though, um, they get Texas Tech at home. They get K-State at home. They get Baylor at home. And obviously, Baylor is improving, but they're, I think they're still at a level that on the right day, especially in Lawrence, KU could potentially beat them. I think this past weekend showed that K-State right now is by no means even remotely you know, close to above us in terms of talent. Um, K-State obviously has a much better coaching staff, and they still were fairly fortunate to to win that game against us in Manhattan. So I, I look at the schedule next year, and I, I think there's a chance there. Um, I, I look at the roster, and they're losing a few key guys, but they're returning most of their two, two deep in, on the offensive line. They're returning all their running backs, um, I don't know if losing guys at receiver is really that big of an issue. I'm sure they can plug in a few guys there. They're not going to be any worse at quarterback. I, I think they'll either find uh, the new coaching staff will bring in a transfer right away to help upgrade that position, or if we roll with a senior Carter Stanley, I don't think he's going to be worse than Bender. He could potentially be better. He's certainly shown flashes of that in the past couple of years. So I, I think potentially you're looking at the, the run game could be – better the passing game the same if not better they're going to be coached a lot better you go to the defensive side of the ball obviously they're losing some key guys in the front seven but they're returning most of the two deep at the secondary and I think the new staff can can kind of do what Mangino did when he took over in Lawrence I mean Mangino came in and he said okay we've got this young core we do need to plug and play a few transfers at some key positions where we're losing key starters he went out and got Bill Whittemore a quarterback he got a couple playmakers on offense. He got a couple guys on defense that could contribute right away. So let's say if we can get three or four potential future starters, maybe from the JUCO ranks or from the transfers, and then fill out the rest with underclassmen. I, I think you're looking at our roster next year being around the same in terms of talent. Sure, we lose a few key guys, key guys, excuse me, but we return a we return a pretty good chunk of this year's team and if the coaching is significantly better and some of these young guys are actually coached up and put in a position to improve, you know, we have a team that won three games this year that should have won four or five. And who knows, you know, maybe next year they can legitimately take a big step forward and, and win six. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I get what you're saying. I think that we just have too many losses coming at some key positions. Yeah, we'll have all the running backs. Well, all, all of the the running backs that are consistently contributing back. Um, you know, I mean, we are losing two in Deron Thompson and Kendall Morris, but you know, I don't blame you if you say who. <laughs> uh, we, they don't really see the 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 field very often, but we are losing a ton on the defensive end. Um, you know, Tyrone Miller Jr. is a senior. Emmanuel Moore is a senior. Those are both safeties. We're going to be losing uh, here. Let me let me see. We're losing Shakal Taylor, uh, you know, corner cornerback who, if he's not one of the you know starter worthy, he's definitely up there. Like as one of our, he's had a lot of really really big plays this year. Uh, linebackers, we're losing Joe Deneen Jr. Obviously, we're losing um, Agbabor. We're also losing Keith Lonaker Jr. Like we're losing a lot of very key guys on the def- on, on the defense, and obviously, you know, I think the, the biggest one of all, losing Daniel Wise up front, he kind of sets the tone there. I, we don't have anybody on the roster that is ready to step up into those leading roles. I think, like we had, you know, with Daniel Wise um, stepping up for for Dorrance Armstrong and and then that kind of stuff. We don't we don't really have those guys in the junior and sophomore classes on our team right now that are clear cut, definitely guys that are going to step up and take those spots. Um, and, and while I know that we don't have any wide receivers other than Steven Sims Jr. that really has stood out at all in their career, um, just the fact that we're losing as many of them as we are, I believe we have, we have four senior wide receivers. Um, you know, it, it's hard to believe that you can replace an entire position group essentially and not have any drop off in production. Now, you know, Granted, any production we get at a wide receiver next year is probably going to be better than the production we've been getting for the most part on, on average. But I just I find it hard to believe that we're going to replace that many pieces and hit the ground running. I do think that you know coaching was probably the biggest deficit we had this year. But when we're talking about next year, there's just there's not going to be as much talent on this team uh, unless they bring in an absolutely stellar recruiting class with only the 15 guys that they have. So, you know, I, I do think that they will probably improve just because the coaching improves and the guys that are here are going to get better um, than they have gotten this year. But I think it's just asking too much to say that they're going to be able to get six wins, especially when you do look at the schedule. Like looking at the schedule, like 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 you said, you know, winning or playing versus Indiana State and, get, and against Coastal Carolina, honestly, they should win both of those games. But, you know, I'm not seeing like that Boston College game is – probably not going to be a very good game for us. And, you know, even looking at some of the conference games, like Kansas State, if you look at them right now, Kansas State doesn't have more talent than we do. But when we lose all that talent, there's no guarantee that we're, you know, that we're going to be able to keep as much talent as they're getting to keep. They don't, they don't, if, if I remember correctly, they don't have a lot of seniors that are graduating, especially at their very key positions. So Regardless of what goes on there. Uh, one like, thing I'll say, though, about Boston College is uh, Boston College is losing literally like three-fourths of their starting lineup. Um, so I, I do think – I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but, I, I mean, it, it's kind of – obviously, they're a much better team than Rutgers, but I, I do think it's kind of a similar story to what we saw this year where um, – Rutgers was right for the taking for us. Uh, I mean, the six turnovers helped. But w- when you looked at Rutgers' starting lineup last year, everyone was like, oh, Rutgers last year. Yeah, they, they were pretty salty, and they won like five games or whatever. But they, they lost pretty much their entire 2D, or, or at least their, their starting lineup on offense and defense. And Boston College is losing like their entire offensive line, um, a huge, like almost their entire front seven, um, three-fourths of their secondary. I'm actually looking at their depth chart right now. And, 
they're they're losing a ton of starters. So it, it's one of those games where I'm kind of like, you know, who knows? It, early in the season, um, you know, maybe they kind of go with the tradition and of, of this past year and, and hand us the ball six times, <laughs> two of which we returned for touchdowns. But I, I do think – Obviously, I'm not expecting us to win that game, but I, I don't think it's on the level of, of some of the non-con games we've had in the past where going into it, it was just like there's absolutely no chance we have in this game. I, I really do think they're losing enough that on a good day and with some turnover luck, we could actually potentially pull the game out. But, I mean, clearly they won't be favored, but they they at least are losing a lot. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that's a possibility. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and jump on to our next one. Um, this is actually the one I have. This is for Kansas basketball, and my hot take that I have, which may not be that hot of a take, is Kansas is going to go undefeated in the Big 12 this year. <laughs> I, I thought of, I thought about that. Um, yeah, I thought about using that as one of mine. But, yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, Bill Self has had – so many, I mean, he's every team he's had has at least been good. But I mean, he's had some legitimate great teams, um, and I, I think the best is the best record we've we've done sixteen and two. I know I know they've gone fourteen and two, obviously, and I think they may have gone sixteen and two um, two or three years ago. I can't remember which one. Um, so they, I mean, they've come close. I, I, I think, yeah, I think the year where they had, you know, Mason Jackson and those guys, they, they may have gone sixteen and two. So, I mean, I, I think it's a little disheartening that they've never gone, they've never gone seventeen and one. They've always had at least two losses. Um, I think another thing to worry about is if KU has won the league, you know, self self will say things like, oh, we're not going to rest any guys, but. We've seen them kind of do that before. I mean, a few years ago when they had the league one uh, in the season finale and Norman, uh, they sat Perry Ellis because he was kind of banged up. I think they, they, they sat someone else too. We still actually probably almost won the game. It was it came down to the last possession, but I, I think that's a worry too. I think the Big 12 this year is going to be really even in regards to, I don't think there's a lot of teams that are really going to clearly challenge KU. I think there'll be some, some good teams, I think K-State, TCU, West Virginia, Iowa State will be better. But I, I think you're going to have a lot of teams kind of hovering a few games over and under 500, which means it's it's quite possible KU's, KU wins the league with three games to go. I mean, we've seen that happen several times before, especially lately. Um, not this past year, but the couple of years before that, I think they had it wrapped up with a few games to go. So it, I, I do think it's possible. I mean, there's – it's just tough. I, I think the new round robin makes it tougher. Um, you know, obviously back before they introduced the new schedule format, it, it was possible that you only had to beat a couple of the good teams in the South once. And now we, we you know, everyone, there's a home and home. So that makes it tougher, but I, I don't think it's crazy, but I, I would be surprised if it happened. Well, so my reasoning on this is, you know, first of all, look at how badly most of the big 12 has played. And, you know, in the, in the beginning of this year. And, and while I know it's really small sample size, it's hard to, to draw too big a conclusions. Like all the teams that we were expecting to be really good, um, in the Big 12 played really like horribly bad. And so like, but even Kansas played not really anywhere near their, their top game, but they, but they, 
you know, we're up by 17 against Michigan State, and, you know, it like all of the main guys were off against Vermont, except for LeGerald Vick, who honestly isn't even one of like the main guys that was expected to contribute a bunch this year. You know, he, he saved that game for them until a few other guys were able to come around and, and help him nurse it across the finish line. But when, when the guy that you're expecting to probably be, you know, your seventh or eighth option on the team is able to carry your team like that to a victory when everybody else is off, you have a team that is so stacked, it's hard to see what team is actually going to go ahead and beat them this year. The other thing to think about, too, is, you know, you're, you're talking about how, well, they may have wrapped up the league title with three or four games left to go. The last four games that they have, it's at home against Kansas State, which they're going to be up for, especially if Kansas State is as good as, as everyone says they are going to be, um, because it's our, you know, quote-unquote rivalry game. Then it's at Oklahoma State, which we always have problems down there, but Oklahoma State is looking like they're going to be really bad this year compared to all the rest of the Big 12 teams. They're at Oklahoma and then at home against Baylor. Um, so, you know, all the guys, all the teams that we mentioned as ones that could give Kansas a, a run um, aren't even on the schedule there except for Kansas State, and that's going to be a game they've already got circled. There's a good opportunity that that game will be um, – I believe that, that, that that game is on a Saturday. So it may be like a, a game day game there, you know, which they always get hyped up for. So I'm not, I'm not like guaranteeing that they're going to go undefeated, but I would, I would honestly be more surprised if they lost three games in conference than if they went undefeated. Like they're so far that much clearly above everyone else. And there are so deep that even if their top three or four guys aren't hitting on anything for that game, they can go to, you know, five, six and seven, and they can have phenomenal games. And it like, it wouldn't even be a surprise if, you know, the, the eighth guy or, or the third guy off the bench ends up being the leading scorer for a particular game just because they're all that talented. Yeah. And, and I should correct myself. I, I misspoke earlier. I forgot that KU went 15 and one uh, in the 2010 season in league play. Um, oh yes. Yep. Yeah. Their only, their only loss was, was to Oklahoma state. And I think Oklahoma state shot like 90% from three, <laughs> or at least it felt that way. Um, I, I do think something to kind of support your theory, and obviously it's a big factor, is this KU team is is legitimately only going to get better in the sense that they have two or more. Well, they they have a couple really young guys playing. Um, obviously, uh, Lawson still hasn't really gotten integrated into the flow of the offense yet. Um, and he's had to, you know, kind of, well, he was bad last game and that caused, you know, Michigan state game kind of subpar and that's not going to continue. I mean, you know, he's a very good player and he's going to be very good for us. So uh, Dotson will get older. Grimes will get older more, even though he's not a freshman, he's, he's still young and new to the team. I think he'll get better and more kind of integrated in the flow of the offense. So I, I do think the, really the, the biggest factor to to support you know this take is that KU ha- is relying on some young guys especially for for offense and you just think that they'll kind of come together as the season progresses and it, it's yeah I mean it's, it's definitely tough but it, it could be you know I think it, it's probably the 2010 season is probably pretty similar in that I do think obviously they're going to win the majority of their league games. I think they're going to win the league fairly comfortably like they did in 2010. And really if they do have one or two or maybe even three losses, I I think, I think teams are just going to chuck against KU this year, especially with what we have down low. And that can be good and bad. If a team is not hitting their threes, we're, we're going to blow them out pretty quickly. 
Um, right. But I, I think teams are going to look at KU and say, we're not even going into the paint. <laughs> we're going to see. But but if a team comes out and, and shoots well from three, I mean, that's basically what happened in 2010. So Oklahoma State just kind of rolled the ball out and decided just to launch three after three, and they hit them. And, you know, there, there's nothing you can do when teams are just, you know, raining threes like that. So I, I do think they'll be probably – I think I predicted him to win two or lose two games in league play before the year. That's kind of what I'm expecting, but obviously when you're when you're that close to you know going undefeated, I, I don't think it would be terribly shocking if it happened. I mean, Roy Williams accomplished it. Self's gotten pretty close several times, so I, it's definitely a possibility. Yeah, and I, I think I actually miss misspoke earlier that that game where they host Kansas State, the the fourth to last game. That's actually the the last big Monday appearance for them. Um, you know, the other thing too, thinking about it, like the, when they do play the teams that are expected to be better, um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about playing West Virginia, playing Kansas state, like they're on the road at Kansas state. It's going to be on a Tuesday. Um, but even then it's, you know, it's right after the Texas tech game, which uh, the, the at home Texas tech game. And then they, you know, they go four days later and they're playing, Oklahoma State at home again. So it's, I mean, they don't have a really tough opponent either right before or right after that game. So I think it'll be a little easier for them to focus. Like may, maybe they could fall into the whole trap game scenario, but with how deep this team is, it's hard to imagine that they're just, the entire team is going to be off on any particular day to fall into a trap game situation. Um, but, you know, playing playing at West Virginia, um, like I think was was expected to be their, their toughest road game in the conference this year, but... You know, West West Virginia honestly isn't nearly as impressive as I thought they were going to be. Um, you know, they had a lot of problems with with Buffalo, and that's going to be again. That's one of those potential game day games. Uh, could get the crowd hyped up a little bit. Uh, but the other one that I was worried about going into the season is is that game at Iowa State. But that's going to be during the Christmas break. Uh, so you know, <laughs> there's not going to be students on campus. It's not going to be nearly as crazy as it normally is. I do remember saying earlier that I mean, it's still going to be crazy because it is Iowa State, but. You know, I'm not expecting it to be as bad. So I just think that the schedule lines up and then the, the talent disparity that Kansas has over everybody else lines them up for, you know, I mean, I, I think the odds of them going undefeated, I could put them as high as like 75%. I'm that confident in that. All right. So, so let's go ahead and move on. We, we have time for just another one or two. Um, I'm going to let you go ahead and hit me with your, your second hottest take that you have. <laughs> So my other one is uh, Silvio De Sosa will play for Kansas this season. Okay, I don't and, know how hot of a take that is, uh, but 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 go I, ahead, give me your reasoning. I think, yeah, I think right now, I mean, I think it's pretty hot just because a lot of people are just expecting self to err on the side of caution, and uh, obviously, you know, these things get so incredibly drawn out. I mean, if if self held out. Billy Preston last year until there was a resolution when we, I mean, we desperately needed Preston on that team. I, we, we, we didn't have a power forward. Um, you know, God bless Mitch Lightfoot. Uh, he, you know, got put in some tough spots. Um, and obviously he, he did a pretty decent job for the most part, but I mean, we really, really, really needed Preston on last year's team. Um, I, I sometimes almost think it's a borderline miracle that made the final four without him. And Self still didn't play him. So I, I get – I mean, that's what I think makes the take hot in that Self has already established a precedent that if 
there's a guy that he thinks can get us into some hot water with the with the NCAA, he's not going to play him. But at the same time, I, I think the reason I, I'm giving the take is basically I, I still just don't think the NCAA wants to go anywhere near any of this. I, I think this is the biggest dog and pony show ever. I mean, there's just – there's way too many teams – that are, you know, involved in this. The reports coming out now, you know, it's so funny. Originally, everyone's like, oh, there's a few a few bad apples, and oh, Kansas, you know, Kansas cheating, and now there's stuff coming out where it's like, here's 30 schools linked to it. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's legitimately like every program in the top 25 and beyond that now is being linked to guys that were getting paid or getting improper benefits. And think about this, too. One name that keeps popping up is Zion Williamson. And there's no way that Duke wants to rain or that the NCAA wants to rain on Duke's parade with all these freshmen and all the attention they're getting and all the hype in a potential team that's going to win the championship. And all of a sudden say, okay, now we're investigating Duke and now Williamson has to be held out. I, I just think that the NCAA is going to have the whole thing blow over really quickly. I think they don't want any more questions asked. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden everything just kind of vanishes and vanishes fairly quickly. And all of a sudden, January, February, DeSos is out there playing and that's the end of it. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I have a hard time believing that is, you know, they've been the, – the NCAA has been completely reamed over this yeah, situation. Um I mean, I just have a hard time believing that they're just going to let everything drop. I I think what they're going to do is they're going to latch on to a lot of the smaller, um, the the smaller violations and say, look, we can show that these sort of violations happen, like the the twenty five hundred dollars that went to DeSouza's guardian that was supposed to be for some sort of online class. Um, you know, those sorts of small things they can go and they can suspend players for a small number of games and let everybody move on. I do believe that you're right. They're not going to go after the big, huge, you know, like this guy got a hundred thousand dollars. So he's completely ineligible now. Um, one, because I think it's going to be hard to prove that this sort of stuff actually happened. Um, or at least happened to a degree where, you know, you could prove that all of these guys actually knew what was happening. I, I do think, despite the fact that they closed all the loopholes in the Cam Newton situation, you know, where, you know, he had no clue what was going on. It was his, his dad or his stepfather or whatever that was taking all the money and they allowed him to remain eligible. You know, a, a, a situation like DeSouza where it's been clear, you know, that he came over and his, his guardian essentially took over all of that and, um, you know, if there was money, it was to the Guardian. It wasn't. It wasn't to DeSouza himself. Um, you know, I, I could, I, I could see there being sort of a a, a backlash in this point. Um, you know, if that's the only evidence that they have is that the Guardian took money. Um, but even then, like they don't even have very clear cut evidence. There's no there's no paper trail of the money actually going to an individual. Um, you know, the last I heard is. Uh, is his his guardian was willing to show financial records to show that you know they never received any of this money there's not going to be the proof i think in a lot of these cases to actually show that this happened um and you know they're going to look they're, they're going to get attacked if they have huge um huge penalties on people because they don't have that kind of burden of proof to show what actually happened they're also going to get attacked if they do absolutely nothing so they're going to find somewhere in the middle um de Souza, i think may end up sitting out for the largest for a very large portion of the season just because 
it's going to take a while for them to decide what they actually want to do. I was surprised to hear that the FBI was allowing them to go ahead and move forward with their investigations, um, you know, without the other two trials happening. And so that was my thought of why he wasn't going to play at all this season. I think it could be something where he comes back in March even, um, you know, because that's when they finally decide what the punishment is actually going to be. And of course, he'll have already been suspended enough game or held out of competition enough games to say that he served whatever suspension he ends up getting. So I do think that there's a good shot he'll be back at the end of the season. But I also I also would be surprised if he's back before February. All right. So I've got one final hot take for you. And that hot take is, well, hold on. I had it. I'm trying to pull up the name that I had. Um, there was a particular, oh, no, that's what it was. Uh, my hot take is that next year, Puka Williams is going to be on the first team. He, he's going to be a first team all Big 12 player. And I think, one, that's really far in the future, which in and of itself makes it a hot a hot take right now. There, there's an opportunity he could be on one of the teams this year. Uh, in terms of the the all Big Twelve, you know, either a second or third team, or just because of how well he's played. Um, but you know, this is assuming, of course, that he actually comes back next year. There's been, well, he hasn't said anything. You know, when you have a coaching change, a lot of the good players don't necessarily stick around if they think they can catch on somewhere somewhere else. You know, and he's gotten past his his academic issues, his his eligibility issues, all that fun stuff. You know, if he decided he wanted to transfer and someone was willing to take him, like I'm sure he could make that happen, and it wouldn't be a big deal for him. Um, but you know, I'm assuming that he's going to stick around. I haven't heard anything that makes me think he's like dying to get out of here or anything like that. Like the only reason I can think of that he would leave would be if he were to, um, you know, not be favored by the next coaching staff that came in. And I, I can't imagine any coach in their right mind would look at a guy like Puka and say that he doesn't fit into their plans moving forward. Um, but you know, I think a lot of the problems that he's had this year is just the way that they've schemed around him, the way that they haven't really gotten anything else going misdirection-wise. He's basically – him and Khalil Herbert have basically been the offense. And once we we work in a competent offensive coach, um, he's going to get opened up so much that, you know, he, he is going to be one of the better performers just with the level of talent that he has for next year. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a terribly, terribly hot take. Um one thing, obviously, with the staff turnover, we, we have no idea how the next staff will, will use him. And having Herbert on the team, and, and I think Don Williams to a much you know lesser degree, but Herbert on the team is always going to steal some touches from him. And I, I think part of it is I think the staff looks at Herbert as being the more ball-secure back. Um, Puka did have a couple fumbles during the year. And if you looked at any of the, the times where we had a, a slim lead, I mean, if you the, against TCU, for example, Herbert was the guy that got every single touch when we were trying to, you know, milk the clock and, and, and basically run the clock out. So I, there's, and, and Herbert is, I mean, he's, he's a good running back too. I mean, he's had some great performances and some great run. He, he had some, obviously didn't have as big a year last year, but he, I mean, he's still an explosive back. So I think, you know, if both of them return, you'll see a little bit of a running back committee approach, but I thought it was telling how much Puka played this past year. I, I really thought that Herbert was going to be the starter and they were going to get Puka the ball, maybe, maybe eight, eight to 10 touches a game, give him a couple, um, maybe screen passes out of the backfield. Um, 
a, a couple sweeps and things like that. But I mean, they were they were legitimately running him between the tackles. He had games where he had well over twenty carries, and he really kind of became the guy for for some you know large stretches of the season. And I, I think so. If the next staff really kind of gives him that that RB one role where he's kind of the the starter and gets the a good bulk of the carries. I definitely think it's possible. Um, there's some other things he can do too. If, if he's the, the kick returner, pun returner, and he takes a couple of those to the house next season, that, that's a nice way to kind of boost someone into becoming first team if, if they've shown some special teams ability as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it's possible. My, my biggest hesitations would be that Herbert is most likely returning for a senior season and, and, unless he – I guess he could transfer somewhere else, but I still think he's he's involved enough and in that that he'll return. And so there's the possibility that the staff decides to you know take the committee approach, and that might restrict his carries just enough that he doesn't have the um, appeal on him as someone you know like you look at Alex Barnes at K State, you know a guy who's the centerpiece of the offense, touching the ball 30 sometimes even 35 times a game. Um, but he's definitely talented and explosive enough to to have the kind of season where he can get it. Yeah, I mean, if but if you look at it, you know, he's had those issues having to share the backfield, um, you know, and he's still number four for total rushing yards um, in the Big Twelve. Uh, I mean, I and honestly, I think a lot of what's held Puka back this year is that typically when he's on the field, the ball's going to him. Like, there's not a lot of times where. You know, he's been a, he's been a decoy. There's not a lot of times where they've had him on the field and, and have gotten good positive plays with another player. Um, and so essentially it allows defenses to key in on him. When he's on the field, the ball's probably going to him. So make sure he can't do anything. If there was another legitimate threat, either they, you know, lined up a, a, a two back lineup and they had Cleo Herbert on one side and Puka Williams on the other side you know, or something else where there was the possibility of misdirection when he was in, it would free him up for a lot more big runs than he's actually had. Like he's doing everything with his own athleticism right now. Once we get the ability to kind of scheme around him and find ways to free him up, I think he's going to, he's going to explode next year. Even if he doesn't get a huge increase in the number of touches, you know, I just, I just think that there's a lot schematically that could be done to open him up and give him the opportunity to get a lot more yards. So that's kind of where I'm going with it. Like I'm expecting not only, you know, is he going to be bigger, faster, stronger, having been on campus another year, but, you know, he's still going to have Khalil Herbert to kind of help be that change of ba- change of pace. And I'm expecting the offensive game plan to get a whole lot better than it was now. Uh, regardless of what you think of Beatty, I think everybody agrees that his offensive game planning is, is my, very, very bad compared to even an average coach. So um, I'm expecting all of those to contribute to him having a gigantic year next year. All right. Um, I think that about does it for us for tonight. Is there, is there anything else you want to leave us with before we get out of here? No, it's, it's, I think it's warm enough in here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Grad, thanks again for joining me to break back out the hot take hyperbole cannon. Um, we, we definitely need to do this a little bit more often. Yep. My pleasure. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. We had a jam-packed episode, tons of different guests on. Uh, I think by the time it's all said and done, it's probably going to be about two hours. But just a quick wrap-up, you know, we've got a lot of action for the Kansas Jayhawks this weekend. Tonight, Friday night, we have the soccer team going to North Carolina for the second round of the NCAA tournament. You can find that 
um, online. It's the ACC Network Extra. You can also listen to that on the radio if, if you're in the Lawrence area on, on KJHK. That's 90.7 FM. That starts at 4 p.m. Kansas time. Um, definitely try to find a way to watch that, to pay attention to that. You know, This is the second time in three years that they've gone out to North Carolina for a second-round matchup. Hopefully this this time they can pull off the win and, and, and can keep advancing. The men's basketball team is obviously in action tonight, 7 p.m. on Jayhawk TV or on ESPN Plus, for those of you that aren't in the Kansas City area. They're playing against Louisiana, and all the rumors that I've heard is that there's a huge announcement going to be made at halftime, um, given all the rumors swirling around Les Miles and everything that's going on. I half expect that to be a introduction of him as the new head football coach for Kansas. Um, we will see if that actually happens, but all the signs seem to be pointing to that right now, so definitely... Be paying attention to that if you have the possibility, and if and if you can't, um, definitely pay attention to our Twitter feeds over at Rock Chalk Talk and, and, and the Rock Chalk Pod. We will be breaking it down and talking about it as soon as it does happen. Um, coming up this weekend, obviously we have uh, let's see the the cross country championships. Uh, Sharon, I, I I always forget how to say her last name, but I believe it's Sharon Lucchetti. Um, she's Obviously been a huge presence for Kansas at the NCAA championships, uh, and, and she's looking to go ahead and try to, to get another national title there to, to finish out her career. Um, let's see. We also have Kansas is going the, – the volleyball team is going to TCU at 1 p.m. That's on Fox Sports Southwest Plus. You should be able to watch that online uh, with the Fox Sports Go app. Then, obviously, 6.30 – Kansas time, we have uh, the football team traveling to go play Oklahoma. As you heard me talk about with Scott, I don't know that I'm expecting that you know to really be a very good game for them, but at least they'll get national exposure. Hopefully it's not as embarrassing as the last time we played on national television. So, um, If the KU soccer team advances from North Carolina, uh, they will play the third round of the tournament on Sunday. So we'll be paying attention to that. Uh, the the women's basketball team also on Sunday plays at 2 p.m. on the Jayhawk Network against Alabama A&M. Should be a good game for them. And then coming up next week, we're going to try to have another episode before this, but just in case we don't, the uh, preseason NIT tip-off will come on Wednesday, November 21st. We are going to be playing Marquette at 6 p.m. on ESPN2. And if they win that, you know, th- their their second opponent will be on Friday. It will just depend on who who actually wins that game and, of course, whether KU wins their game. So we'll know that opponent not until Wednesday night. Um, volleyball team also plays on Wednesday night, and the women's basketball team also plays Wednesday night against George Mason. So it will be a jam-packed week coming up for us. Make sure you pay attention to all the action. And, of course, if you have any questions or, you know, just, just want to talk KU sports, you can contact us. Email is rockchalkpodcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us on, on Twitter at rockchalkpod. We'd love to get all your comments, questions, um, you know, any, any suggestions you have to improve the podcast or anything like that. Please do find us on iTunes, rate, subscribe, leave us a review, all that fun stuff. It really does help to boost up the podcast so that we can get more visible and get more people listening. So, um, you know, if, if you want us to get on, to try to get onto any other podcast networks, such as, uh, you know, Stitcher or, or any of those other ones, Google Podcasts, all that fun stuff. Um, you know, let me know. I will do whatever I can to get us on there. So, but that'll about do it for tonight. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, sorry for how long this one is, but it being the 100th episode, we really wanted to celebrate. 
and just go through as much as we possibly could. So uh, we had a really good time with all the guests we had on tonight. It was really great to talk to you guys. I hope we, we get to talk to you guys for another 100 episodes at least. So once again, thank you guys for listening, and I will catch you next time on the Rock Chalk Podcast. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.